Shut the face. Start with that. <laughs> okay. okay. We're live. Um, okay, folks. Uh, can, you see, can you hear that? Can you see? Um, there's an on air here. <laughs> okay. Uh, I'd like to uh, welcome you all to the, the meeting today. First meeting of the new year. So, happy new year uh, to you. Um, I was looking out the window there a month ago, and you know Christmas is over when you see the, the Christmas tree being cut down and being shredded, so it's well and truly over, so you're very welcome back. Um, um, again, we, 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 have a, we have a quorum, um, uh, and we're all seated, uh, so I want to thank us all for coming here today, it's such short notice, uh, and during the recess as well, and uh, we've... Um, the meeting ha has been convened to receive a briefing from witnesses on the operational and practical issues arising from EU exit on the 1st of January. Uh, Claire, John, Patsy, uh, Claire, John, Morris and Patsy will be joining us, uh, ha ha are joining us on Stardew. You are very welcome. Yeah. And, and Philip. And Philip, sorry Philip. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, <laughs> I think Philip was on his way and then he had a swing around, so that's, he's, not, he's not on my note here. And uh, as we know that the, it will be recorded and broadcast through our parent buildings and online. Um, again, you know the rules, you can use mobile devices provided they're uh, on airplane mode and uh, muted. We don't have any um, apologies. So the uh, first item is number two on our agenda, but the first uh, item um, of business, no apologies, the second item sorry, is that we're going to have an oral briefing uh, from Logistics UK on the operational and uh, practical issues arising from EU exit. And I'd like to take at this juncture welcome uh, by Starleaf, uh, Seamus uh, Lehenny of Logistics UK. And Seamus, can you hear us there? Seamus, I'd like to thank you for making yourself available to come and talk to us at such, uh, at such short notice. And, uh, I, think, I, think, and uh, I note that you've been very busy. We're, we were uh, logged on watching you yesterday at the NAFRS Committee in Westminster. So thank you very much, Seamus. If you take 10 minutes or so uh, to outline, um, outline the issues that you wish to bring to our attention, arising from exit, uh, and obviously members will, will want to ask some questions after that. So Seamus, you're very welcome, and thank you, and Happy New Year. Okay. Thank you very much, Chair, uh, and, and, and thanks for um, asking me on this morning for all the members of the committee as well. Um, my name is Seamus Lenny, I'm the Policy Manager for Logistics UK here in Northern Ireland. Um, we represent the interests of 18,000 businesses across the UK. So it's my job, like I say, is I manage the Northern Ireland aspect of it. Um, I've been with John now for just over sort of 10 years. Um, prior to working for Logistics UK, I worked in the shipping industry in Belfast. I worked for a couple of different shipping companies with experience of customs clearance, uh, shipping, etc., and knowledge. And um, European here in Northern Ireland, we have roughly we have five staff here in Northern Ireland. So I have a policy that we have people look after members in different aspects. We're between maybe between 350 and 380 members here locally. And my members can range from you know, a large wholesaler, retailer, a large hollier, like a small hollier with five trucks, or a you know, large hollier with like, 500 trucks. So a broad range of members, and also you can make multinational logistics operators into that as well. So you might think members, and you're hearing from all, all aspects of the industry here, people who move different types of goods. So what we're going to do today, it's um, day seven. Of uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, and um, the language that we already spoke to the Northern Ireland Affairs Committee yesterday, it hasn't been played sale. 
um, a little bigger, and otherwise proves the course um, with a short, so short space of time to prepare for businesses, there was always going to be issues to, to get any system of this magnitude up and running. We had a UK command paper on the Northern Ireland Protocol was published on the UK government on the 10th of December. And then after that, we were kind of different, different derogations or guidance. There was some, some guidance not be published until the 31st of December. So some operators had less than 24 hours to know exactly what they were going to have to do on New Year's Day. And that's a problem we've said for a long time. More operators for the for, for the, the magnitude of this of this change in trading conditions would need at least need at least six clear months to prepare and that six months would be the push. I don't think you'd get a year. So um, the problem we're faced um, at the moment is it's in two different areas. It's on customs and then it's on SPS. FPS stands for sanitary and phytosanitary, so in that sort of relevance to your kingdom, that's the movement of products of plant and animal origin. And currently, um, we're on one of stress at the start of this meeting, and I want to pay um, all this respect to them, is your dairy official on the ground. Thank you. 
struggling with problems on the ground here. I've had fast in Iran. Now we're looking to arrive from third country and food products into the EU and handle that pre notification. We're the first boat back, or they're told to pull across back into the border. Um, here's some delivery from Delhi officials have actually um, worked with local businesses and GB businesses to make those entries, those shed entries, into the, the traces system and subsequently the pre notification. And then once that's done, the boats are allowed to, to move on their way. So some operators are fairly better than others. Um, there was one operator I mentioned yesterday, the first committee, they had on Sunday nine trailers off food stopped, they didn't have a pre-notification done. And thankfully, through guidance from a dairy vetting official and um available, they found online how to complete these entries, they were able to do that. Um, and thankfully today their movements are still are moving now okay. So they've got over that. A lot of other companies, I think those in the field, there's a lot of companies in GB to understand their requirements. Uh, and that comes down from SME businesses right up to large blue chip businesses. But they might be contacted by businesses in GB who have a commercial presence here. You know, one way they weren't aware of any of these procedures they needed, but there was a panic there to get these systems in place and get the documentation done. The system for the moment at Adam Kevin takes a lot of time and I have a correspondence this morning from, from a major business here in Northern Ireland just telling me that one of the, one of the customs um, custom house claims providers that is affiliated to the trader support services that they are really are carrying out the shed and traces um, paperwork uh, entries for a lot of followers here in Northern Ireland. And they're working probably about two days behind target. They've been simply overwhelmed by the work. And I think that's the case right across the industry. And both here and GBU, people haven't been aware of the, the volume of admin that this is going to involve through. And I suppose you know, a lot of businesses were told in the last couple of years technology can solve everything and remove friction for customs. Well, I think that, that there myth has been um, disproven. You know, that um, you cannot simply um, push away sexual anatomy when you implement um, customs controls anywhere in the world. So that, that, that's on the, on the, on the SPS side of things. We still have a major problem with SPS is that um, a lot of food comes into our it's classed as rubbish. So I will send a lorry, let's say I send a truck to the northwest of the moon. And it might lift a number of food factories around Greater Manchester, and lift a number of you know, sausage rolls, some sausages, and some burgers, and then open the Liverpool and I'll lift some, some pork there. Up underneath here, all the current rules, when you lift the first couple of pallets of food products, then meant the, you meant to seal the trailer. And also, we have a lot of these products, if they're on the prohibited restrictive list, so like sausages, for example, they still need the export health certificate today. We are in the process that we can't steal the truck because if that has to sign off on the load, that what we sign off on is secured and can be tampered with or removed from the vehicle, that's impossible when you're British. So, what we did at the moment, Western Union, myself, and my six major operators uh, in the food movement uh, of goods into Northern Ireland, along with Dai, and how we come solutions on this. And uh, we're going to follow some ideas and cooperate with current systems that are in place, IT based, 
for tracking and obviously therefore we can manage these routage. Um, so hopefully when we're in a position again to organize uh like the idea of this solution and uh, hopefully we'll be in a position where that idea can be put forward to DEFRA um, that we can get DEFRA the Commission to agree to us a, sim a simplified managed system uh, to, to, to ensure continuity of, of groupage and foods coming to North Island. But we don't there's been a lot of pressure, there's a lot of businesses under a great deal of pressure at the moment. Um, another issue with customs, which is the other environment for those who own here. Again, um, some businesses are found better than others. It's um, fairly long and heavy to make a declaration. For someone to make the entry into the GVNS and the Trader Support Service, it's taken maybe upwards of 30 minutes for them, from that point of view, to make this entry. The problem is we can't find the Trader Support Service. We've got this enormous, I think, initially £200 million, and then a further £155 million over the next two years to implement um, software as an industry. Um, they can go around as well. Um, there, there's a lot of issues, I've got a lot of feedback from operators. Um, someone actually rang me at quarter to ten this morning, Hollinger, um, and they were, they were online to transport service yesterday on hold for about half an hour and then not able to get the answers from the staff and the phones. And um, I, I, I think as well that the, 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 the GPNS is an HMRC system where then you put the customs data into because you aren't allowed to ship from GB. Uh, the ferry companies won't permit you to the terminal if you haven't completed the customs correctly. Um, that system's a little bit clunky and slow as well, and I'm uh, getting reports of different issues from, from members with that. And I'm not unfair with this, if people are having their customs ready, it's twofold. A, we have a lot of lines um, arriving at suppliers and factories and warehouses in GB. And the, they're asking for what's called the MRN reference. That's the, the reference one that you get from HMRC when you've input the customs declaration. And a lot of businesses are looking at them and not realizing they have to do that. And I think maybe you could do you know, a couple of reasons for that. It could be a lack of time guidance from governments, and especially in GE for businesses there about their procedures from the goods to North Ireland. I also think probably the implementation of the UK trader scheme um, just before Christmas that some people thought that was a self-declaration where business alligators would not be at risk. So therefore there should be no tariff applicable. And some businesses felt that that meant if you were part of the UK trader scheme then you be customs. Um, and it's probably one of the more fact we've had is then where they go in. Um, if they don't, if the supplier doesn't have the customs done on this, the hauliers will have to make the tough decisions saying we will suspend this collection because definitely if these go through and we do not do the customs online, we won't get to the port whether it's Canada or Liverpool, the ferry company will get us into the terminal. And I've heard reports of um, lorries arriving in the ports. So remember about 25% of trucks are in the GB ports for IRC crossings. I would refuse um, entry to the terminals initially. There's somewhere able to go away, speak to their offices, and get it resolved and, and represent themselves at the terminal and then gain entry. That shows you there's a lot of goods that simply haven't completed the documentation procedures properly on that. Uh, and at the moment, there are a lot of suppliers in GB have maybe suspended deliveries to one of them uh, because they're simply trying to get uh, on top of, of the admin and the systems on how to do this for them. So 
Um, I'll the rest of an overview for now. We're obviously happy to, to take any questions and, and discuss further from the members of the uh, thank you, uh, Seamus, uh, for that uh, very uh, comprehensive uh, briefing, and commend you as well. You're a very strong voice for the sector and for the freight industry, and we've been watching you and following you on Twitter and on, on television. Um, I want to sort of ask a question. Um, from listening to you today, and indeed um, watching the uh, yesterday as well, there does seem to be a, a major issue with the, uh, the, the, the Twitter support service. And one of the things that um, you referred to recently was the need for targeted support uh, for the haulage sector. And uh, again, I note from, from listening today and indeed um, watching all of this unfold recently that a lot of businesses, particularly across the water, uh, rely on the, the freight sector uh, in terms of uh, to try and more or less to sort out the paperwork for them for, for access to here. So, in what shape or what form do you think that this target support for the haulage sector should uh, take Shimas? I think um, the future we're seeing, I think the future we're going to have to step in. They have the skills and the expertise to help businesses. And they have been delegated to the trade support service. So the government basically um, get on board with this, this work uh, and that support to the TSS. And I think. Um, there's a mixture of skills in TXS. There's some people there who are extremely confident with years of experience, and there's other people um, that really are fairly new to this and they're really struggling to get it. It's probably you know, give you one anecdotal you know, example. Um, I, I had one member tell me yesterday, you know, when they call the TSS for support, they have to explain to the individual helping how a lot of the trailer actually disconnect the person didn't know that sometimes traders go on boats with like actual lorry and pulls them. Um, so they're getting to that level of, of, of how to explain something. It's very frustrating for the businesses. There's also cases um, of, of um, people asking for advice and you know, they get a scripted response or they're sent maybe a slide pack maybe of upwards of the 80 or 90 slides to go and read. Uh, and that's what we were saying, what people's businesses were expecting. We were expecting you know, that there'd be um, email phone lines um, where we could pick up the phone and be someone with uh, customer experience who could give them that advice that you could expect from a customer's broker. Because customer's broker is not used to work in the industry, like, they're few and far between here in Northern Ireland. Uh, and they're already there with the elements of working they have already. They're doing the customs that have always taken place with a third country trade, and then they're trying to look after the new procedures for the current customer base. So I think a lot of people hope that TSS would do So what we'd like to see is the HRC to try and step in here and offer, especially for the SME hires, some of the larger hires. We've got the expertise to be able to recruit and get people in the different companies have got some very good um, capable staff that can act as them. But there's others, um, I mean, I've spoken about how our small college business this morning, and they said if this keeps up for a couple of weeks, that they'll just have to pack in. They, they will just focus on local college work in Northern Ireland and the public. They will give up on doing cross channel work. And, Seamus, what's your assessment of the movement assistance scheme? The cost of the export health certificates. Um, so, what it does, it covers the cost of the 
still get most of the travel expenses for the veteran officials doing that. But it's really guaranteed up until the end of March. So you know, there's a fear that we reach a cliff edge um, around March time where companies will start having to pay for EHCs again. And we need to commit uh, for a longer period of time for this because this can be overwhelming to the groupage shows. If I'm, if I'm a business, if I'm a business, say for example, in North Ireland, I'm going to SKS goods from a dozen different suppliers or GE, so a dozen different um, veterinary officials that have to go to each of those sites and sign up on what could be a dozen other EPCs for various products to run the back of that lorry. And um, it would really seem to be cost around about £200. So you know, it doesn't take long for those costs to multiply, and the fear is, is that you know, margin is pretty tight as it is in, in retail. Um, that if it becomes unprofitable to move goods to North Ireland, that some suppliers will simply think this isn't worth the hassle or the financial viability to continue doing this. Um, and just before we move around the rubbish, here, just I want to just pick up on that EHC. Uh, each each EHC could cost two hundred pound each, right? And um, and we had heard previously that um, trailers coming in here to the north may have up to uh, 400 separate products. Could it be a case that uh, a trailer load may require 200 or 400 EHCs at 200 pound each? It could be. Yeah, uh, it's, it's, it's not inconceivable. Chair, um, that you know, it would be right. Especially on the child goods, you could could have operation of you could have you know twenty eight, you could have twenty you know varies. Uh, it depends on how many different commodities you're dividing. If one pallet, one pallet comprised of one product, it could be one pallet of of burgers. Or it could be one pallet comprising chicken wings, chicken nuggets, burgers, and sausages. And for each of those products, you would need an EHC for that. Ideally, what we need done, and this is something we've pressed before, and we've spoken to the EU Commission about this, is a new legislative retail movement scheme. So, it's a bit like we talk about you need to have a retail trade scheme where companies self declared their products will not go into the public garden, therefore, no tariffs is at risk. We would like this scheme in the long term where the wholesalers and retailers who are moving primarily the large volumes of products in here is that they're part of a trusted trader scheme. We can also do a lot of BCHCs in bulk. So if I'm a producer in England and I'm making sausage rolls for the North Island market, I get one EHC maybe per month. And that one EHC can then be duplicated and used for, for dozens of deliveries going to Northern Ireland. Um, and that may be part of that Thank you, Seamus. Uh, I'll move around the room here. William, you're the first on the list. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and thank you for your presentation. I mean, I suppose we could very easily say we told you so. I mean, this is going to be unworkable, I believe. Uh, the sheer monstrosity, as you've said, even for companies, some companies will stop haulaging across the, the channel. Um, I had a haulage company on yesterday and I'm told there's a large number of haulage companies used Customs Clearance Consortium Group. Their system crashed yesterday. And I'm told since that that this group has said they're going to walk away from this. this is, it's not worth the hassle. So if, if, if these, and I'm sure you're aware of this, you know, if that's the case, that these haulage companies have signed up to this group to do the work for them, and that's not going to happen now, What's going to happen? I understood in the system we were told there'd be flexibility for three months or six months. 
if we're facing these problems now, what are we going to face when the flexibility time period ends and we have full implementation? Yes, um, Mr. Arnold, yes, thanks. Um, yeah, you're, you're correct. Um, that that CCC Customs Care is concerned. There's some concern. I think a lot of people who had uh, people involved in different elements of customs in the last couple of years have tried to talk to industry, say that they could remove all friction, that they had all, you know, they had the answers to make this easy. And, you know, we've been doing this that way before. We've talked about, you know, various whether it was the protocol or the Brexit, etc. Um, said you, you just can't, you can't rush away um, and red tape. Um, I think businesses were promised less red tape um, at this period of time. Um, and and, and nothing could be further from the truth where we are. I suppose you might just make one um, for the last four years that we were facing something like this. Um, I, I, I will say that that would have a consequence if people decided to walk away from their contracts uh, and providing customs care services. Um, and that's something you know, obviously, uh, we expect of the government to wear contracts to people to provide services to industry. Um, we would expect those businesses to stand by those contracts and the service commitments. Um, some some college companies are doing um, these uh, services in house. They have the people to do that, they have the staff or the manpower, you know, they have the finances to do that. But the, the, the vast majority of businesses are relying on third parties to do this, and it's imperative that you know that they don't walk away from this, that they walk this side. I think the worst thing we can do in this side is try and walk away, walk away from a problem, because I think that to another side are worse for us. Do you not see serious problems in the next few days? I'm told I'm told by the weekend there'll be some stores right uh, stocks, their shelves will be less, they'll be not stuck on some shelves in the supermarkets by the weekend, I'm told. I don't know, maybe I'm not going to see that, you can see the bathroom or retail um, sector, but um, there is some good getting through, but also there's a lot of good stuff not getting through either. Uh, and what we've got to try and use this large job, it's about getting flexibility, it's not like a very, we're working with the other. But how to improve things. Uh, and the, the government issue, one of the things that we're going to do with the protocol is a line document that's not a good thing to be written and closed. Um, it is something that we can, we can, we can change, and it's something that the joint committee can work with us. And the UK government, one of the EU, can make this easier for us. And then that's where the likes of this committee. Um, we need to apply the pressure onto the government, onto the government office, the cabinet office. To make sure that our concerns are here and the flexibility and grace periods um, are extended as well. We'd like to see you know, this three month agency period, obviously extended for at least another three months. Yeah, well, if, if we are supposed to be in the flexibility period now and we have the problem, which would be very sensible given we're only into the system a few days. I mean, if we are seeing the problems now when there's flexibility supposed to be in the system. I, it baffles me. I, I just um, we we had concerns in my party, and many of us said that this was unworkable, and we believe it's unworkable and it will be unworkable. Uh, I uh, many others uh, seen this as a way forward, but I mean we it was clearly going to be problems with this, and I mean the magnitude of this is unbelievable. And uh, I'm told Article 16 can be. Brought into place to can change or revoke some of this. Is that right? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, 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 I think that's right.
I was recently coming in you know, a circumstance. Um, the problem with that is that if um, other party, whoever votes out of the system, either party can vote it, but the other party then must take reciprocal measures um, on that. And then what would happen if we would vote that? Then the risk is, is changing the WTO terms. Um, and then we're, we're left with probably an equal amount of problems with moving against both with the EU. And it's quite kind of likely that there's still some form of, of controls and measures on the Irish state as well. So we probably exacerbate the problem because then we're dealing then with red tape and we're just moving north south and east west potentially on that as well. Um, it's basically if you go there, I think people will ever consider that if there's a clear plan of action. I think lifting the ball up as the pitch you walk them off is not thing to do to them, but it has calm heads, have a clear plan. What we want, if we're not going to use the Northern Ireland Protocol, then what is the alternative and how is it going to work? That's why we're here today. This is why we're in this situation. We've had numerous deals proposed by the UK government over the last three years, all of them were rejected. And you know, the business community here supported the backstop. The backstop would have kept us in regulatory alignment and in the customs union. We wouldn't have any of these problems today with the backstop. This is the result of you people rejecting that. And that was entirely its, its, its decision. So we have to work along with that. So take this actual plan alternative that works in proven. Um, because I, I, I think industry, especially the holiday industry, would really matched up at the top of the hill on this. And to say, let's invoke this, but we don't have a plan of what to do next. I think that's just a serious one for us. Okay, um, thank you. Uh, and William. Uh, Rosemary? Yeah, thank you very much for your presentation. Thank you. Um, coming from a county out in the west of the province, where haulage is so important, and we've got a number of haulage businesses, as, as you're, you're aware. Um, t a lot of these haulage businesses obviously go to England, Scotland, etc., uh, bring over goods, and then collect goods on the way, on the way back. Now, what percentage of them at the moment are being held up and not getting back? Yes, um, as well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, there's some of the plastic colleagues over at your county that have not been on, that I've been speaking to recently. Um, I'll give you one example. Um, there was a, a large holiday here at the start of the week. They sent um, sort of 285 lorries to Great Britain from Northern Ireland. So, that shows which are fueled from Northern Ireland UK, fueled for better access to GB isn't a problem. So Northern Ireland products are getting on the shelves across England, Scotland, and Wales, and they're not very well. The problem for um the Tuesday night, they've only received a hundred of those lorries back. So less than half of the lorries were able to complete their return journey later. And it's important because the way the way the whole cycle works here, if, if it's a cycle, you make your money when your pricing is based on getting your over to England and then getting your load back again. And the problem was for that particular operator, I know this is replicated, I've spoken to other country companies this one, is that they make the delivery fine in England, but the supplier to England then are not prepared to complete customs to have the goods shipped to North Ireland. So we got to understand and make the tough decision is that do we sit and we wait to get a little bit dry 
that are being shipped from lorries back empty to Northern Ireland. Because the problem is, if we could get the lorries back to Northern Ireland, how do we continue servicing the unfettered exports from MI to GO? And, that, and that's critical, because if we don't get those lorries back, then the exporters are local manufacturers suffer here. And that one power that I used the example of the 285 lorries, they made a really tough commercial decision to ship uh, a number of lorries and trailers back empty, which is you know, you never want to do them. How much goes if you're running empty, you're burning money. And that came to them with a personal cost of £24,000 to do that. But we didn't, we did that because we didn't want to let down the customers here in Northern Ireland. Yeah, uh-huh. Um, another thing, what, what work has been done with the haulage companies by the government or by officials to try and bring them up to scratch, to try and help them with the paperwork? I know, yes, we have these various schemes, we have the trusted trader schemes, etc., etc. But as you've said, these are holding lorries up sometimes 12 hours before they can get answers. The people working in them are inefficient. They're, they still haven't got to grips with their tasks, etc. So um, basically, what other, what else can be done now to get our hauliers, etc., up to, up to scratch, so that they will not be wasting time, they will be, will not be losing money, etc., etc., on their journeys and their turnaround time. I think um, it all comes down, not come down to the training support service. Then maybe they will need to get them and uh, the global consortium, which is for the TSS is made of different businesses, let's say that the consortium was made. And um, so they have to really have the capacity, the arms. So, someone at uh, a company called me last night, they're apparently, and I need to check it, but um, the, the, the training support service will need his phone number for his website. Um, of course, you couldn't find a number anymore to, to call it. So, we, we basically um, are real, you know, kind of improving in capacity, first and foremost. When I say that we need the advice of the HMRC, seven, and then the chairman of a couple of thousand staff, among various helplines across the UK, you know, at the end of the transition, I think a, a number of these staff should be um, redirected to a dedicated Northern Ireland service. Especially for the hardware sector here, because for the best of the hardware, you do have the most expertise in the needles. And you know, I remember saying a year and a half, two years ago, when I said in local media, I think I said back in the government here, we needed to implement a funding scheme where consultants uh, and trainers would go around businesses and give them those in house skills and expertise to do that, and also call for apprentices. So that we can have an apprenticeship scheme where a company could recruit someone and train them up on customs and then have them then for this eventuality. And one of those things were, were delivered by government, and obviously we passed that point now. So I think the best we can is for the government to hold the likes of trade support service to account and make sure we get value for money from that service. Um, and the HMRC dedicates its, its, its services uh, and staff to. to Mm-hmm. And just one one other question. You, uh, William referred to the protocol, and then you talked about the ba- backstop. Would the backstop position in relation to getting goods into Northern Ireland from Great Britain would that have been a better option? No, because um, in the UK, you know, 
became the slogan in the custom movement. So we wanted to do our customs declarations. Mm -hmm. Also, we sent them to the mandatory um, standards as well. So we moved a lot of these SPS. So I believe um, we didn't sort of have any of these problems we're faced with today on that. Thank you. Thank you, Rosemary. Patsy, can you hear me there? <clears throat> Patsy Malone. Thanks very much, Chair. Um, first of all, I'd like to particularly thank you. And uh, I know you will be coming on uh, as well shortly because of the tremendous work that you've done in keeping people appraised of what's going on and your knowledge of the sector. So thank you very much for that. Um, just specifically, I've had a number of queries from businesses. Now, these would be the medium sized businesses, and um, you referred to earlier there, and one of them, what I'm saying, was the Trader Support Service was pretty poor in getting advice. Now, I know that that's an HMRC you already referred to there, but is there anything in particular, all of the usual lobby, that we need to be doing to, to uh, improve that service? Because clearly, you outlined earlier, some people are seasoned hands, and others are just new to the business, and they really don't get any grasp of uh, the practical realities of, of basically doing business. Um, what, what do we as a committee need to be doing to share up that, that experience? Well, um, thank you very much, um, Mr. Room. And um, uh, I, I think as the Trainer Support Service, you know, it's, a, it's a publicly funded service that the government we're paying for. Um, I, I, I think you know, and that was a, a tender awarded by, by HMRC and by our government one that I think we really need to apply and get pressure. I mean, myself and other business representatives here have had a meeting with Michael Gove from here today, and we'll certainly be making representations that we provide and we can help to account on this. Um, you know, I, I think that we need to check and see what more we can be able to serve the other targets for you know, the likes of the support service to deliver on the new one. Um, I know that in the customs clearance concern, for example, that Mr. Irwin mentioned earlier, um, I had one business tell me that the weekend, uh, the CCSB had four members of staff working, um, but so the weekend we were on the road, we were doing whatever was required. Um, so I, I think the best we can do to move in the medium term is to improve the efficiency of that service and, and what's the limit is going to be to say that I think some aspects of the TSS has been underutilized. I think basically, um, because there's one of the many experiences from GBA and I happening, because what we have with a lot of businesses in the GBA have taken a step back. I'll, I'll give you an example. Um, the business in GBA on Monday was you have 15 loans collected for the Korean in North Ireland. Um, that business, the power team collected, they weren't aware of the customs procedures. And so we have taken a step back and we said to you, we have a week or to consider how we would manage these loans to North Ireland now. Um, but thankfully, those goods and a lot of ambient goods, those goods were actually destined to move up for the Easter market. So we have a lot of products when we're talking about shortages, we need to be careful because ambient products are costly, they're big beans, things like that. We've got to get through more supplies here. Where, where, where this pressure is, is the chilled fresh produce, is the chilled meat, so it's the fruit and veg. And you probably talk to Hayden to, to on that too. So I think it would be just need support for business because we need someone at the end of the film to help them in the interview, talk to them, talk them through exactly what they need to do and so, you know, certain amount of flexibilities as well. Yeah, um, just, um, I know it's 
probably at some important stages, now very important stages, it's probably early stages in, in, in order to be able to analyze just the range of difficulties and deficits that there are and also the strong points that there may be uh, in the trader support services. But Chair, with maybe your forbearance, would it be okay Seamus, if you get specifics that you would share them with the committee as and when you've done that type of analysis? Thank you, thank you, thank you, Patsy, thank you, uh, Philip. Philip Wigan, Philip. Philip. Thank you, Mr. Chair. Did you just wait for uh, Dennis? I think it's important to maybe address uh, William's comments about the Koji. So, I mean, that's all nonsense that the DUP didn't tell us anything. And in fact, I mean, they need to realise that the discussion that we're having, the problems that we're discussing this morning, are a result of, of a Brexit that they pursued. Uh, and they didn't tell us, you know, that they tried to wash away these problems through IT solutions that, that don't exist. And, you know, as Sheriff and Rosemary have pointed out, you know, there were solutions that would have suited the North and its businesses much better than the DUP actually voted against. So I think that those comments needed addressed. In terms of Seamus, Seamus, I appreciate you coming on board. As everybody has said, you, 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 you've been really good in terms of setting out the problems and explaining them in, in an easy to understand manner. And I would echo what Patsy has said. I, I think that maybe in the back of this evidence that we hear from you and others today, the committee will have some work uh, engaging with. Uh, Probably our minister and the executive and maybe others, so that, that we can continue that engagement throughout this process, that, that would be good. The majority of my, my points you either answered or uh, other uh, members have asked, but in terms of the problem, Shema, sort of, of uh, NI Hollier's views in Dublin courts uh, from Britain to, to, to come on this island, I mean, there's a difficulty there. Perhaps if you could maybe explain that, uh, the problems and maybe potential solutions there. And then other, uh, the other thing, just, I mean, a lot of what we're discussing this morning, uh, as you have pointed out, is because the probably lack of uh, the British government's preparedness and maybe the lack of preparedness of businesses on, in Britain. Uh, and you know, over time, some of those admin problems, the, the systems will hopefully, and the communications will be improved. What, what, what will we be left with if that is the case, uh, Shemus, in terms of the major problems that maybe you don't foresee being solved uh, through the next sort of three, four months? And how do we solve them, or who solves them? Is it an issue where you know, DERA can help, or are they all issues that, that are, are going to be uh, addressed through the Joint Committee? Um, thanks very much. Um, I, I think I'll take your last, your last question first of all. I think the long-term solution is obviously the movement of food in here, so the export health certificates. I think we're going to need, we're going to need two solutions. We need, when I, when I touched on earlier, and I think um, you, you can pick up the witnesses after me, um, we need a solution with this export health certificate. I don't think it's sustainable to expect an EAC for every single consignment of food coming in here. Um, what what we problem is something like the retail movement scheme, and that's something like the you know, the Northern Ireland business um, Brexit working group that I'm part of that we have put towards the EU and, and the UK government on that. And what we would like to say is the trust of traders as such, 
um, um, we need to move the need for individual EHGs for every single consignment. One reason is a huge job in the body, but if you think about the pressures on the veterinary and, and environmental um, officials in the GD to provide that service, I think it's quite stressful that they can keep up with that. And so I think that's one solution in my opinion, we need, we need to, to, to figure out. Probably one thing that I want to touch on as well is the, the groupage consignments. I mean, it's not practical to see a trailer which you've got two parts of food and then you're driving up the M6 to pick up another two parts. We need um, the system that we're probably going to propose, the Dallas would approach definitely a hot rate account. Um, IT system, it's currently an IT system, uh, it's called Manda, it's used with that, you'll see it in the end of the line, some of these are really stuck in one of our eyes and on the internet, but you'll see on the refrigerator trains, you'll see that we have an action platform called BRC accredited, and BRC, British retail, because um, we're going to investigate say, retailers, find the supermarket, I want full traceability of the food that's coming to our shops, so I want to know if I've got you know, um, a load of chicken coming to our supermarket in Belfast today, I want to I will see live and retrospective where that chicken was loaded and how it got to our shop and what temperature it was kept at. And it's a brilliant system that's currently available to all hoggers and users who are currently being part of. So what we're trying to say is that um, rather than to see the trailer, is that you see the pallet and then using the, the, the IT systems in place already, that's something that our officials and also the EU can have confidence that if we want to check the traceability of a load and it's safe what it is, that they can just access that IT system. So we can make a lot of solutions, you know, they, they exist already. And that's where we go back to the flexibility. And one of our protocols are live, it's a live document, we can, all, we can change it, we can alter for the matter of the it's a people's interests to make it sustainable the protocol and to work with us. So if if they can do things like that to make it more sustainable for us, it's in our best interest. So that's the type of um, solutions we need to look at further. Um double report um huge report, especially for the agri-food market. The Department for Economy carried a study out this year, and um, it's something that I recommend, but it really worked out that 20% of the freight going on ferries to and from GB is actually Northern Irish goods. Um, that's clear, I'm going to double report something, so we're going to do a peak savings at 8 o'clock, even in Dublin for England, or uh, Hollyhead and Wales, so. Um, we recognize a lot of the trucks and the ferries are our household names. Um, and that's one of the reasons the reason we rely on Dublin is the fastest route to market um, for the south of England. So if you want to get goods into the south of Birmingham within um, the, the delivery time you need for food, you have to use Dublin Holly Head. Um, because if you use, let's say, that fast in Liverpool, that's a very large saving time, that doesn't get you in, you're still in the office of England. If you lose um, Belfast or Lyon, you can't mind, that's a quick sailing time. But then for the long drive time, you've got to get across to the M6 and then drive down the whole length of England to get down to London. So people need to Dublin because it's a quick and straight down the M1, then pull the tunnel around, go to the two and a half hours later on Hollyhead. Um, the problem with that, what we're trying to sort of sort the moment, that we're going to be welcome if, if, if the committee can obviously add pressure here. Is that um, we need a transit agreement that works? Transit basically, um, the movement of transit is like a passport where you can pass through another territory and move goods without having to do customs. 
So if I could submit the program, the exist terms of capital, you're not allowed to the protocol of unfair access with the EU. So if I'm a business in, in, in England, um, I'm about to do customs by import goods from France, let's say. But if I'm a business in Barbara and I'm buying goods from France, well, I can pick up a road in France, raise a transit document, which is in customs, that's a, a document the shipper can raise for about 30 euros, and what it's the same passport, it's telling the HMRC, these things arrive in Dover, they're not actually staying in June. They're going to Northern Ireland, which technically is part of the single market, so there's no customs due, and there's no tariffs due or any regulatory controls, because basically what the transit does is saying, this one's none of your business. It's, it's going to improve the single market. You know, what we currently need in the transit system that works if I'm moving goods from Hollyhead to Northern Ireland via Dublin, or vice versa, from Northern Ireland to Hollyhead via Dublin. Um, and that's where a lot of haulers find problems. If I'm doing four declarations and, and doing um, pre-order notifications for leaving Hollyhead bound for Dublin, that's, that's, that's creating a lot of problems there. So, what, what the solution we need? Um, it's that when I'm applying a line, let's say going to Northern Ireland from England and leaving Hollyhead, the one that arrived in Hollyhead, um, HMOC have already planned, set up there as an office, uh, office of departures, an office of departures where you'd start that transit movement. So I'm not going to rush Hollyhead, I'm going to Hollyhead, I'm clocking and I'm saying, well, here's the road that's in Hollyhead from Dublin, but it's not actually going to be Republic of Ireland, it's going to come from Ireland. And then basically, I did, um, I was showing you customs, you see this particular rise on the tram so we didn't need an uh, import declaration, we didn't need an SPS check on um, if it's food products. It's a really light, it's, it's a light of the port, and travels on its way to North Island. And then what we need then is that we have a remote office of destination. So if I'm delivering, let's say, to Jim Rogers, I'm going to battle when I leave Hollywood as my destination. And if anyone has a machine that in, in the native order agencies, they know where to find me. And you have to get, I think it's, um, it's 12 hours notice for, for border force. So what could happen is that the company's going to trust me that yeah, I'm going to finish this transit journey and come from Amal West Davis. But because I have more 12 um, hours of notice, is that Border Force could say to me, you know what, Shane, you can allow you to fill out in 12 hours for delivery. We just need to do a routine check. So, could you come to an official office of transit? That could be, you know, for example, if you could have it near the average or Belfast. Just come up there. I just want to make sure it's just a routine check and make sure the goods are what you say they are. And that would, that would help continue that flow of good news in Dublin. You can move in both directions. At the moment, we're not going to use transit using an authorised consignee status in Northern Ireland, which, if I go to Mount Warehouse, I can get that where I can complete those journeys. But it's a huge admin to do that. And before you can do authorised consignee status from HMRC, you have to get what's called a temporary storage approval from Border Force, where they have to come and do an audit of your facility. It's all things like security, interest, and really, what really benefits from very large businesses here in Northern Ireland, your general businesses, SMEs, and your typical hollier, would find it very difficult to acquire that. Okay. Um, Claire? Thank you, Chair, um, and thank you, Seamus, for all that, and good luck, and, you know, absolutely real. 
the difference between the protocol operations and, and the backstop are just incomparable and, and many of us did support the backstop for the very reasons that you pointed out. Um, but we are where we are. I, I, so I suppose maybe just to try and maybe not cover as much that, that has already been covered. I mean, we want to have a look at or ask you, over the past couple of days, I, I know that you said that the DRA officials have been really good and on the ground, and, and we know from speaking to them here at the committee in the past, the volume of work that we're doing, but I mean, I think anybody um, realistically could expect that they didn't sign off on the 31st of December and businesses to be ready, you know, a couple of hours later on the 1st of January to be able to move through this new system and it's absolute shocking that, that people were put in that position anyway but what has our minister's response been um, and what's the Westminster response are they listening are they you know, prepared to, to take up the challenge and, and put in the steps that you're really calling for or advocating yeah right, thanks so much and uh, I, I would say to me like um, I think the minister and the minister are engaged with us on this um, I, I think a lot of these formalities that basically that um, you know, it's, it's been imposed on there, a lot of it, it's, you know, we, do, we don't have a decision on this, it's, it's part of the protocol that's brought in, so I think we've been struggling up a little bit by obligations imposed by DEFRA and the UK government here on this, so I think you know, if we are going to get any flexibility in time, this, it has to come through that joint committee on the UK and the EU on this. And that's what we need to see. I'm not seeing a lot of transparency, uh, and I haven't had any engagement with that joint committee. And let's face it, the joint committee will run our protocol. That's going to dictate business and society for all of us here. And we need to see it working. And we need to see more, more yet engagement with the likes of your committee and, and the business. But you know, if we can engage with it's a various European assembly committee on that. You can at least portray our concerns or our feedback on that. We need to see that happen urgently so that you can address what I tell you today directly to the people who can make necessary changes and flexibilities that we need. So it continues then that if any changes um, are to happen, um, we will need the EU to sign off on that as well and agree any changes. That's definitely a joint committee thing. There's nothing the UK can, you know. Um, Traders coming through. I think the, 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 the natural 
Thank you very much, Chair. And, uh, thank you, Seamus. First of all, I'd like to praise um, Deira and all the officials and all the men on the ground and all for all the work they've done. I mean, if anybody's raised to it, they certainly have raised to it. Absolutely no problems there. Um, a wee comment, maybe, on the UK ports. Did you say that um, some of the lorries were actually getting over here to the NI ports? Um, without the paperwork, because I thought that they wouldn't get leaving the UK terminals without the proper paperwork being in place. Seamus, maybe one we'll answer that first of all, and then we'll move on. Thank you. That's the problem. You can only ship once customs have been done, and that's where we're seeing the impact of supply chains and hours today is because not every business realizes what they have to do with customs. Either the business didn't know what to do, or they're waiting on the providers providing that service to do for them is, is, is overwhelming or overwhelming, and they can't keep pace. And are the EU officials in place yet overseeing this? We were told that there would be EU officials in place. Are they in place yet? Or? The, the EU officials um, here, um, so they're, they're kind of interested on the, the SPS. Um, from, from my discussions, really, is that um, they're simply monitoring, they're just uh, watching, um, and that they're quite happy with the unity approach um, format. And we also need to make sure that that approach is, is maintained for, for the foreseeable future. Um, so there's no issues there um, with them watching us, so but we just need to make sure that they don't suddenly want to apply, you know, lots of out um, overnight with really, some things because we need that flexibility. The problems prevent themselves when goes right in Northern Ireland. We need um, flexibility and, and, and practical solutions to solve the environmental bureaucracy. Yep, yep, 100%. Because the last thing we want to happen is the shortages. What I'd be frightened of is spooking traders or businesses into sending stuff over here, so we do need to sort that out. Uh, that transit system, we, we do need to get a transit system that works. That's first class. Yep, appreciate it. Thank you, Seamus. All right. Thank you, Chair. Uh, John? John Blair? Chair, um, thank you. Um, uh, I want to, like others before me, to just comment on the I told you so remark at the start of this because people didn't tell us so. They predicted uh, there would be no problems and they accused some of us of scaremongering when we told clearly that there would be either a problem east-west with freight or a problem north-south with food production as well as freight and that that's the actual reality of what was happened four years ago. And we are four and a half years ago, and we know the Northern Ireland people's verdict on it as well. Um, but looking for solutions, um, Seamus, I want to add the thanks to you and colleagues for the work you've done on this recently um, in, in an ever changing situation, and also the constant work and resource you have to apply to this for the last four and a half years. Um, are we in a position, and we're going to go you've already touched on this, um, on the end of Dublin route? And the possible solution of alternative there. Are we therefore in a position looking to what political, small pay, and large pay, and departmental help there can be 
where GROs should be engaging directly with um, RHW, um, their RHC department of private parts, to look to those solutions also. And specifically, it's relevant at this time that DERA, either ministry or departmental level, are doing that currently. Um, thanks very much, Mr. Brown. I think at the moment, DERA um, resources and attention is focused on the Northern Ireland um, folks at the moment. I think you know, they are under a great deal of pressure, um, uh, and that's where their efforts are going to be quite likely. We need to see ourselves a problem on their doorstep, first of all. Um, but I certainly think, um, uh, you know, for our ivory for the industry, the importance of Dublin. Um, can't be you know, overestimated, and I think the department should be raising with the counterparts in the Republic to find that solution, both to the improvement of SPS controls in the Republic Board, but also on the travel issue as well. Okay, so, so currently we're probably not seeing much of that um, engagement taking place, but it's something we as a committee could pursue, or us as individual members could pursue, to try and encourage more conversations in that regard to look for additional solutions, really. Yeah, yeah. through that, and also through the special joint committee as well. Like I said, um, we've had no meeting whatsoever, but this community has an engagement with uh, the special joint committee. Uh, I think that committee needs to convene as soon as possible and start seeking these practical solutions we can learn. Thank you. Thank you very much for that. Okay, John and Morris. Morris. Morris, your audio is. Oh, we can yeah. hear you now. Can you yes, Morris, can hear you now. Yeah. Uh, Jimmy, thanks very much for your presentation. Uh, it's well done. Well, I'm going to write the protocol. I'll be calling on all the government to the And 
opportunity to, to thank you uh, for your attendance this morning uh, again at such very short notice and in the middle of a uh, extremely busy busy time for yourself and it was very interesting and very informative and detailed discussion so thanks Seamus and uh, no doubt we will be seeing you again thank you now thank you gentlemen thank you okay thank you um before we go off the next so uh, so perhaps we should we make maybe look at the possibility of making a representation from the committee to the to the support service, uh, the JC and the the the, 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 the minister Norton in the south around some of the issues that Shim has raised. Hey, tell me again, who you want to read? Uh, the the JC, the Joint Committee, the Peter Support Service, and the um. Mr. Sorry, Claire, what did you say? Yeah. Yeah. Minister, sorry. No. What? Well, I thought you said Norton. No. Okay, I'll check. I'll check the name. I'll check it out. But yeah. the issues of Seamus is after raising. Have any other issues? I think Minister Grove. Minister Grove as well. Okay. Okay then. Um, and that would be on the issues of the, um, the the working of the trusted trader scheme, the possibility of a transit yes. system. Um, would be on the the issues of groupage. Yes. Yeah. 
um, and it would be on the um, issues of the integration of the current BRC IT system. Yep. Okay. Um, and trusted trader um, scheme. Trusted trader scheme because there's, there's a trader support service. <laughs> I'm just making sure I get the initials right. That's grand. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, okay. So. Um, we're going, to, we're going to move uh, on here now to the, the next uh, item on the agenda and um, we're going to have an oil briefing from the NAE Business Brexit Working Group on the operational and practical issues from, uh, arising from the EU exit. And I want to welcome by Starleaf, um, uh, uh, Aidan Connolly of the NAE Business Brexit Working Group, Victor Chestnut, the President of the Ulster Farmers Union and Wesley Aston uh, of the Ulster um, uh, farmers Union as well. So um, again, I'd like to thank you uh, for making yourselves available to talk to us at such short notice. Um, again, I, know, I noted uh, yourself, Victor and Aidan, were addressing the um, Westminster Committee yesterday. So you know, again, um, like Seamus before, you have a very busy time, very busy schedule. But I'd, li I'd like to get maybe to ask you to take about 10 minutes or so to outline the, the main issues which you want to bring to our attention arising from the exit and and no doubt members here will have questions they'll want to ask off you after that there so uh happy new year to you and, and thanks very much you want to kick off there uh, good uh, morning chair good morning uh, everyone and um, thanks uh, for, for uh, having us this morning uh, to talk about what is uh, a critical issues uh, for not only business but for consumers in, in northern ireland uh, one of the things that uh, i learned a long time ago is never go after Seamus Lehane because he always uh, takes up all of the thunder before I get to do it. Um, so I'll try and skip through as, as quickly as possible um, some of the issues not only affecting my own industry um, but affecting the other industries that are on the Northern Ireland Business Corrective Working Group and then I'll hand over uh, to our colleagues uh, from the UFU. For, for retail, um, there have been a few hiccups with pre-notifications on, on uh, traces we're talking about a brand new way of working here with sales and stations, that sort of thing. And uh, one of the big problems is that we really didn't get all of the information about how this would work until very late. Even if you're talking about parcels and moving parcels to Northern Ireland, um, we had people we, we, we people being tra trained up on the 31st because that's when we got the information. And then they had to put it into practice on, on, on the 1st. So, there's obviously going to be teething problems. Um, there's going to be teething problems if we have three or four months uh, of notice. So there's obviously going to be teething problems at, at, at the start of this. So some suppliers have uh, ducked out or opted out of, of Northern Ireland um, for, for the moment. Now we've been working very hard to try and get them back online, try and explain to them what is necessary, uh, what the necessary paperwork is, um, and, and how uh, that can work. Um, but this is really the sort of opening skirmishes and what's going to be a, a sort of rather truncated um, uh, embedding period, if you want to call it that, where everybody gets used to these uh, new systems. What we really need is for the EU and the UK to sit down around the table in early January uh, because we are facing that next cliff edge in uh, the 1st of April as far as uh, EHCs are, are concerned. Um, Seamus earlier on mentioned the uh, retail movement scheme, um, which would be really, really useful. That would be that sort of trusted trader, which would encompass 
uh, but customs, which isn't as important now between the zero and zero trade agreement with the, uh, with the EU, but also that sort of F, uh, SPS area, which is hugely important um, for us uh, here in, in Northern Ireland. As far as manufacturing is concerned, they've had a, a steady flow of concerned people with business specific uh, questions. Then again, they had said that they were going to be right, and, and quite simply, it was the time frame that they were getting the, 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 the uh, information. And that's sort of a theme that, that runs through quite a bit of, of um, across industry. But the FSB has said that there are some that small businesses who are policy aware, but when you get into those micro businesses, and um, some of them are not prepared, um, and, and they're trying to get around either by ban local or uh, trying to find different ways to, 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 to work. One of the things that we are seeing is that a lot of GB suppliers should not be in food or are right right across the board and um, haven't engaged as much with the new processes weren't as aware and that is is causing problems now that's quick to iron out if they engage with the trader support service and if they uh, bring themselves up to scratch for as far as what what is is needed on um the uh food and drink side uh, nefta said that the um, supply chains are holding up um, but they're again worried that the grace periods are simply kicking a can down the road and, and we need this workable, simplified, sustainable uh, solution that the Northern Ireland Business Working Group has continued to, to, to ask for. On VAT, even those um, with uh, resource are finding the new VAT regulations confusing and like I said, this is a, a bit of a theme here that it's uh, Doable and all this is eminently doable. It's the time frame uh, of when we have the information and how uh, long it takes to 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 in, in, embed. And um, there's questions about the fat and the margin schemes for for car dealers that need sorted uh, uh, immediately. And CBI have also brought up as far as legal contracts, there's um, commercial contract issues as to who pays for the additional costs, delays, checks, etc. One of the big things that we have been sort of working on as a collective is um, how we then uh, in the future, um, and starting from January, are, are able to uh, talk to the joint committee. So if the joint sort of working group, we need to be able to make formal representations to that. Specialised working group, we need to make formal representations to that. But also, how does this work with the new trade and cooperation uh, uh, agreement? There will be a partnership council with subcommittees, and how will those interact uh, with the arrangements around uh, the protocol? We need um, to be in there telling them uh, what the concerns are and bringing forward solutions around simplification to make this as light uh, as, as possible. So that's where we are really at, at the moment. There are um, some problems and um, we always knew there were going to be problems. We've been saying um, since October that there was no way that business was going to be ready. I think um, there have been great strides made in this past couple of weeks. Um, anyone who I know who's been working on, on any industry uh, that moves things, GBDNI, NIDGB or, or, or any sort of uh, freight work um, had very little of a Christmas holiday quite simply because we were trying our best to make this work. Now there have been hiccups and there are, will be other things that, that uh, come up such as the, the end of that grace period for um, SPS on the restricted list, uh, that will be the 1st of July. There's money needed for the, that movement assistance scheme and to pay for the uh, export health certificates uh, from the 1st of April. And there's a lot of asks. Uh, I suppose we are being more and more like Oliver Twist. 
Every time UK government leave, gives us something, we go back and ask for more. And, and that's what we'll continue to do quite simply because we need a workable, sustainable, uh, simplified way of, of working to ensure that we can continue to give choice and affordability to Northern Ireland consumers and allow Northern Ireland business to be uh, competitive. Uh, thank you, Eden. Um, we'll move on. Uh, we'll take all the questions after the three years or uh, make the representation. Uh, Victor uh, Wesley, do you want to uh, come in there now? Good morning, Chair. Morning, morning Victor. MLAs, uh, uh, and a happy new year to you all. Yeah, I'm here. Thanks again for the opportunity to come and speak to you. Um, I would say, you know, on a farm game level, it hasn't been all bad news. Uh, January 1st has come and gone, and from a farmer point of view, at the farm gate level, so far we haven't seen any change. Having said that, in 30 days, there's been no livestock brought in since the 1st of January, and we are uh, facing major snags as we go forward, especially from GP to NA3. There has been no period for uh, live animals or, or, or plant. Uh, you know, farm friends. So that means that uh, we have farmers in Northern Ireland with sheep purchased in the UK mainland that are now stuck there. We have uh, sheep potatoes that normally come in from Scotland that are stuck there. Now, there's some positive and some negative in this. Certainly, we would like to see a grace period so that uh, farmers who purchase those sheep uh, can get them in this year. There may be an opportunity in that, or they will get see an opportunity maybe to grow more of their seed in Northern Ireland. There was a, a agreement made on where potatoes. Um, the one thing our potato growers are, are concerned about is that the phytosanitary controls and checks would be adequate, that they wouldn't bring in diseases such as brown roll and ring roll because that would uh, inhabit the the potato industry in Northern Ireland to produce seed uh, going forward, so they, they want to see uh, effective checks done on the ports on those stuff coming in. Um, there's another industry in Northern Ireland that might be small in the, in the whole uh, scheme of Northern Ireland industry. It's the Pedigree Sheep Industry, or Pedigree Livestock Industry, both sheep, cattle, uh, dairy cattle, and uh, beef cattle. Northern Ireland, because of the size of our, our, our farm system and our farm, farm family structure, probably we've had more time to pay more attention to detail, so we've punched well above our way as a regional now. As the rules stand at the minute, uh, we, while we can get our produce to the UK, or our animals to the UK, we can't be sure if there's any head off for six months. Um, that look as if that uh, trade will be severely uh, restricted to the extent that it will really uh, change that uh, trade that Northern Ireland has built up and has a reputation uh, both within uh, the UK and the Europe and the world worldwide, where the genetics in Northern Ireland have been uh, right off the top of, of, of our game. And if we face uh, these rules, just absolutely welcome that route. Um, the, our produce, um, I'll get a lot more content to be honest at the end of January when we see that our produce is going south for processing can go out to the EU third country trade deals and that these other countries don't kick up. 
I think it's essential, as Ian says, that you know this the joint committee, the Northern Working Groups, especially the committee's not going to actually engage with as quickly as we possibly can, so we can address all of these issues and going going forward. I think as well the whole issue by trusted traders and toxic knowledge things that have been previously are not critical. And but say the agri food industry pretty good Wesley and uh, Victor for your presentations as well. Um, I just want to, um, a couple of questions before we move around the room. Um, Aidan, you had mentioned there that there are um, some suppliers that have opted out of the North um, because of the, the the issues that they're facing uh, in terms of um, supply into here. Could you put a figure on the number of suppliers and is there any estimation at this stage here as the what the economic impact might be for here? Well, I think um, the, the, the number was very small. What I was talking about there was those who um, weren't aware of the partial rules. You've got to remember that the partial rules only came in on uh, the morning, sort of early afternoon of the 31st of December. Um, and for you to be able to send on the 1st of January onwards, you, that needs to be arranged three or, days, three or four days beforehand. And the majority of people of those firms have come back online, and um, some others haven't yet. So um, what we're doing at the moment is trying to, to um, do a bit of an education piece, as well as uh, you know trying to find out uh, who, who exactly is affected. Um, but that education piece of how you actually um, you know, are able to send uh, parcels to Northern Ireland. Um, now there are, again, uh, there's a, a bit of can kicking going on because the derogation that's in place from HMRC lasts until uh, the 1st of April and we still don't know what those parcel sending rules will be post 1st of April. Um, so again, it's one of those things where as soon as we get over one hurdle, um, our group is, is going back and saying, right, we need the information on this, we need this simplified and uh, it's that sort of pragmatic uh, approach of, of looking at uh, what the next thing to uh, to deal with is and uh, that's how we're doing um, it. Uh, during the course of um, the evidence we gathered today and from uh, also listening uh, yesterday and other times, the Trader Support Service seems to, keep, seems to keep cropping up a lot of the time, you know, and there's £355 million of public money invested in the Trader Support Service. Um, you know, you know, do you think it's value for money as to what service is currently there to get businesses on board to get them prepared for these changes? Well, I think Seamus covered it pretty well in, in, uh, in his uh, remarks. Um, at the moment, we're still trying to uh, talk to some of our members. We have uh, several conversations coming up to see how it's working out for, for, for them. 
And I think that, you know, 300 and whatever million is, um, is, is a huge amount of money, however, it's a huge uh, task that they have before them. Um, I think that one of the problems with this is that um, there were unrealistic expectations from a lot of people um, about what those actually want to do. And there is no such thing as the good customs story who gives a magic wand and suddenly you don't have to do merchant codes or custom codes or, or uh, transit or, or safety and security certificates. What we're talking about here is a fundamental way of uh, a fundamental change in the way that we do business with, with Great Britain. And that was always going to take uh, a, a bit of time to embed. There was always going to be uh, teething problems. Uh, my concern now is to uh, find those problems and try and get solutions to them. Now, some of those solutions will be as simple as um, some of the GP suppliers understanding what exactly they have to do uh, to send goods to Northern Ireland. Other ones will need uh, flexibility from the UK government and from the EU. And to that end, that's why we will continue to engage with the both uh, Cabinet Office, the NIO, and uh, the EU. But we need that formalised. Um, we need that formalised uh, contact with the, the, the Joint Committee Working Group. Northern Protocol is set up as a living document, and the Joint Committee is there and will be meeting on a, on a regular basis to make deliberations on how we are able to trade with GB and how we are able to trade with the EU and, and, and everything in between. Um, for me, that is where we need to be uh, putting our efforts. So we, we deal pragmatically with what's on the table at the moment, and then we go back with solutions and that makes things uh, easier. Um, thanks for that, and, and I suppose when I was reflecting back on my notes from the, the previous time you were in front of the committee here um, in the autumn, uh, you'd made the point at that stage, which was the clock was ticking down, there were 60 out of 67 questions that you had posed of the government that hadn't been answered. So, you know, all from my perspective, from what I can see, that there, there has been... Um, woeful um, preparation for this year, certainly from the, the British government side and indeed for the Trader Support through the Trader Support Service as well. In terms of uh, uh, Victor or Wesley there, um, the, the fact that the MAS doesn't cover the um, the support health attestation documents, could, could you, do you have any assessment about what additional costs this would incur upon uh, farmers here um, who, who would be important from across the water?
Chair, and thank you, Aidan, Victor, and Wesley. Just one wee uh, question or comment from Aidan. Um, I have been getting a lot of inquiries about the VAT on the used cars purchased in England. Um, I know it's January and it's um, dealers' busiest time usually, so I know you'll not be able to give me all the answers, but just tell me what you do know about this, your progress on it, or where you are, what information you have on it, Aidan, please. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you very much, Aidan. Thank Hi. you. Thanks, um, William. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. And uh, worst of all, thank you, I thank you for your presentation, uh, Aidan. Uh, in relation to the haulage companies, and they're in a difficult position in, in this whole scenario. Uh, we have free access to the UK market, so lorries bring out loads of goods, and then try to get a return load, which is important to make it viable for them. But I mean, I was contacted yesterday by Hollage Firm uh, and they employed a customs clearance consortium to do their paperwork and I think their paperwork, their system crashed yesterday morning and uh, later yesterday afternoon I was informed that the that particular company's if they haven't done it thinking of ceasing doing this, where does that leave the Hollage companies in that situation? Um, this past 
three months, six months, um, maybe longer, and every meeting and every press release and every event session is that business uh, would not be ready uh, and quite completely could be and didn't have that technical detail uh, that we needed. Uh, if that is not manifested itself in the fact that there are these teething problems um, with especially around, around customs, you know, there's customs codes um, that need to be inputted, and you also need your safety and security code, you need to then generate a, a goods uh, movement uh, reference um, for your, your body. Now, when we are used to this new system, it will be a lot easier. I think because, you know, and we have said for this past three to six months that it was going to be impossible um, for all business to be ready. I think we're actually doing okay at the moment. It's just going to need a bit more time uh, to embed. I realise that that's frustrating for people who are caught up on it. It's frustrating for business and it's definitely frustrating for, for us within the, the Business Practice Awarding Group. Um, but we're being pragmatic and we're trying to work with what we have. Okay. Victor? Victor and Wesley there, whichever one wants to answer. Uh, in relation to feeds and fertilisers coming into Northern Ireland, do you envisage any issues in relation to that? Because I had a farmer on yesterday morning. He normally um, orders his seeds from Sutton's in England somewhere. Uh, but he, he rang in to give his order or emailed in his order and they said they will not supply in Northern Ireland anymore. So that is certainly an issue for someone wanting to acquire seeds. Uh, I'm trying to be... Cabbage, cauliflower, a lot of different seeds in relation to carrots, parsnips, all of that. Uh, he went to order and said they're not supplying Northern Ireland. Uh, what's, are you use aware of that situation? Yeah, I'll take that first. Then I'll reach over to Wesley. Just on your uh, former question to Aidan, on the So uh, it's, it's an issue we are looking at going forward, but uh, it's one of the things that we need to address 
in relation to you know the definition of atlas products and if they remain in Northern Ireland and travel beyond that, you know, can we maybe uh, sort of reduce the administration of bureaucracy with a like that? So all that's very much in, in, in the Melbourne part with as we think. We just in relation, we import a large quantity of feedstuffs for animal feed and fertilizers. Can you envision any issues there? Yeah, on the animal feedstuff, uh, 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 the, the, the problem was, I, as I highlighted, that this rebate system is not in place yet. So basically, if we were running uh, wheat or, 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 or barley in from UK mainland, uh, that would have a, a, a tariff that all have to be paid until it was proved that it wasn't that it was used in Northern Ireland. And if these companies don't know when they'll get that rebate session, what way it works, whether whether it's done retrospectively, in which they wouldn't have to buy any money or whether they'd have to pay it and then claim it back later. So that is having a, 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 an effect in Northern Ireland. We are in a situation, for instance, for say say the stuff that came from Ukraine last year, if that was coming this year, uh, if it was coming into the South of Ireland or wife, Manage European product, no extra charge. If it comes into the UK, it comes in on a UK product, no extra charge. But because we have this problem with that risk, there's going to be an extra charge to us. There's going to be a tariff to pay and then claim back. And then I think with the fiber ton I was quoted, it's going to be dearer to us in UK regardless, or in Northern Ireland, uh, rather than. So we are, we are at a disadvantage both from the ROI and the UK mainland, but I'm a that have to be imported. Okay. Okay. On, Thank you. On the, on, on the fertilizer one, we, we, uh, we, we're not terribly sure yet. They also, the other one, chemicals is what we're considered. Again, I'm like the States. Northern Ireland is a very small market. Uh, we think we have people with EU labels, but if we, if we need a specific label for Northern Ireland, it may well be that these companies see Northern Ireland as too small a market to develop a specific label for Northern Ireland. So um, they may well leave the, 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 the field, and um, that, that would be a concern of us going forward um, and, and labelling. So it looks as if we will have to go on EU labels, but uh, we're not quite sure yet whether they need a specific label for Northern Ireland or not, and that could cause big problems. Okay. okay, thank, thank you. you. Um, John, John Blair. Well, thank you, Chair. Can I, can I thank at the start uh, Aidan, Victor, and Leslie first for being here with us, and also, as you did with Seamus previously, for the amount of work they have had to handle uh, to keep us informed for the past four and a half years. Uh, <laughs> looking forward, there, there's going to be more of it, Jeff. Um, where we really are, we know the volume of work and we're grateful for that. But there are two things. That the first one uh, is quite a general one and probably more for, for the Ulster um, Union. Um, are we satisfied at this stage that uh, any work around the UK EU trade deal, which is done by UK government, reflects properly that proportionally we depend here. Uh, more heavily on our agriculture and agri-food sector and therefore I suppose to, to, to refine the question um, uh, are UK government taking account of the fact that that is such a proportion of our economy um, here and do they dedicate the resource to that accordingly? The second question is relating to the, the unpolluted potatoes and, and we touched on that there a moment ago um, I have distributors of sweet potatoes and chipping potatoes in my own constituency 
who are very concerned currently uh, about their future. Um, is there any sign of uh, uh, progress on discussions around that currently? I'll maybe take the, the last question first there on the potatoes and then reach over to Wes for the first part of the question there on, on the, the importance of Northern Ireland agri-food industry and the, to the Northern Ireland's economy. On the seed potato one, there's no movement at all. Uh, at the last minute, there was a variation on worm potatoes. Uh, and the worm potato one uh, was said that the, the, our, our, our processors would say that they need to buy the ware from UK mainland because basically of the, the dry matter contact and the potato with the weather pattern. Um, some of our potato producers would uh, uh, take a different view on that and say that it was all to do with the scale and the price, but uh, I'm not sure where, where the truth of the focus of our battle. But uh, on the seed potato one, Northern Ireland was very dependent on seed from Scotland. A lot of those have been brought in uh, before, uh, earlier this year, uh, with uh, the recognition that this could be a problem after the 1st of January. Um, so we think we are very well sorted for the 2021 growing season, um, but there have been no movement at all of seed potatoes. Some of our, our, our potato acreage has been contracted in Northern Ireland, and some of our, seed, our, our potato growers see this as an opportunity where Northern Ireland have, has a high health status as an island island, and maybe can produce uh, some of these seed potatoes both for ourselves and indeed for Europe. Scotland, producing a new pretty uh, concerned, not only about Northern Ireland, but it's a small region that they produce a lot of seed for uh, ROA and also other European countries. So they are really putting pressure on that. But as it stands at the moment, there's no movement on the seed potato one. Thank you. Uh, I'll reach over to West in the first part of the question. There's a response to your question, John, but did they? gentlemen for your various presentations. Um, I want to take a look at pedigree livestock um, in relation to my question. Um, it's go going to sheep, as Victor you will know I get the odd phone call about them. Um, it's, in it's in relation to, you know, a purchase from, a purchases of sheep from, do sheep have to be all, now when they're coming into Northern Ireland, all declared to be from scrapey registered flocks? Yes. Or non scrapey registered flocks, yep. 
as of as of uh, the first of January, because the UK moved uh, now uh, we're bringing sheep in from a third country to a European region. They all have to be from scrutiny monitored flocks. Oh yeah. Uh -huh. uh, uh, and there's very few of these in GB mainland. Uh huh. Yeah. Um. In on GB mainland, you have sort of two two types of pedigree sales for sheep. You have the ordinary pedigree sales, and then you have the pedigree export sales for perhaps Northern Ireland sheep breeders coming, bringing sheep over to Northern Ireland. Would it be an advantage to just purchase from pedigree export sales? In the past, there, there hasn't been that need, so you, you had uh, sales just in the uh, you know, Green Society sales, yeah. uh, and uh, uh, that was always able to, to be able to bring them in on, to Northern Ireland. Um, going forward, the, listen, this whole trade, I can't stress uh, strongly enough, this whole trade is in danger of shopping completely. Yes, in theory, we can take them out, but we can't operate in that marketplace. And uh, the sheep, and for instance, in the ram sales, as you know, Rosemary, uh, around sales take place in, in August and September, and about two to three weeks after you bring around home, is needed for work because of the seasonal, uh, the seasonal breeding of sheep for the where they get tipped out and, and, and lamb in the spring. Um, Sixty days that ram has to stay uh, before it can come over. Uh, it also, if you get another errand sheep over there. And we're trying to bring it back either because it didn't get sold or was bought by another Northern Ireland breeder. It has to stay six months, and the same with pedigree life show. So, this trade, the whole pedigree trade, both in, in, in cattle and sheep, uh, and indeed probably to some other sectors as well, um, is in danger of completely folding. And if Northern Ireland has punched well above its weight, there's, there's plenty of farm families in Northern Ireland that are making very good income out in the top of their feet in different pedigree breeds of either beef cattle, dairy cattle, or, 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 or sheep. This is just purely an example of the issues that we're starting to find now going forward, uh, in that uh, this is where we need the joint uh, control working actually talk to us about you know, what, what issues are and the EU and the UK have both stated that they will do their best endeavours to ensure that we can actually minimise any additional uh, bureaucracy or controls in Northern Ireland and Great Britain. So uh, we're very keen to try and do that. Yeah, uh huh. Well, well then, um, in relation to uh, sheepdogs and sheepdog trials, bringing enough sheepdogs over, over to England for sheepdog trials, etc. Um, there's quite a lot of that goes on within Northern Ireland too, and bringing them back, that's going to be the same problem then? Yes, that, that problem right over onto pets, where they have to have uh, yeah. documents of, of, of their uh, animal health status and their, their, their treatments all documented, and there have to be a veterinary label to have a pet because it comes from the UK mainland. Yeah, okay, that's great, thank you. Okay. Um. Claire, you were on the system, I see you're off, Claire. Yeah, thank you, Claire. Yeah, go ahead, Claire. Um, just want to come back to... Uh, Victor's talking about the rebate system not being set up yet. Victor, do you know why? Was that meant to be set up, or was that something that was sort of agreed on the 31st of December? It was, it was meant to be set up, but it was 
was meant to be set up, uh, we're still waiting to see of it. Um, they, they did the zero tariff, zero, uh, zero tariff, zero quota uh, did away for the majority of the need for it, but there still is goods that are considered at risk that will incur the tariff that will have to be uh, claimed by a rebate system. Um, you know, mail companies, for instance, have to order that uh, animal feed two to three months in advance. Now, how could you order feed two to three months in advance, knowing that there's an 85 pound a ton tariff to be paid, which just works into millions immediately, not knowing whether this is a retrospective of payment or whether you have to pay it out front and whether you'll get it back one month, six months at the end of the year. Totally irresponsible and ridiculous situation, which does mean that uh, animal feed companies are looking for elsewhere in order to go to uh, or to go to import grains, which means it takes away the, the flexibility of them to go for the cheapest uh, and possible. Now, the, the UK harvest was, was uh, smaller last year in the UK because of drought earlier in the year, and last year, the figure I was given, we're taking in the same stuff from Ukraine this year as we did last year, there will be two and a half million of tariffs. To be paid, and you know, I can't urge enough. We need to get sight of this rebate system. There is a way it could work. You could be retrospective in charge of the rebate system, and at that stage, you could have uh, the information of the state of Northern Ireland, so they might not have to be wanting to change arm at all. It could be a paper exercise, you know, if there was, if there was enough flexibility in the system. Um, but we do need that set up. And, why why uh, why we haven't seen side of it, I don't know, we just I don't think it's just a private debt I've done yet. And nobody's had side of it, that doesn't you know the NGP has seen this either. Is this a HMRC scheme? Is this a UK government one? Um any particular department? I'll bring Wesley on there with who would be responsible for setting our rebate system up at any uh EQ uh UK government scheme that will be the morning. So you get on the scene, so maybe the HMRC team will have a look at this. It is a joint consultative committee that they actually have for us. We actually got on now as well, just trying to hide all these issues. So uh, it's a new day on. Thank you. And this relates me into, I know from what Aidan's telling us as well, from what we've seen in the news, that um, perishable goods in particular are, are not moving and we're losing a lot of that, you know, if they're being stopped um, and they're not making it through. Who is liable, if anybody, for compensation of that? If, if businesses are being stopped from um, moving from GB to NI, from NI to South, wherever, you know, and if they're stopped any border, any checks, um, and their goods then are lost, you know, if it's milk and it goes off or whatever, will a business be compensated? It all depends on the individual contracts um, that are there and some of the contracts will have full penalty clauses in them, others will not. And I think that's one of the things that CBI highlighted, that there is a lot of questioning going on about um, these, these added costs were not built into a lot of the, the, the contracts. So there's a lot of questioning going on at the moment about who is uh, liable uh, for, for this. Um, some contracts will have it, some others, others won't. Uh, but it's, it's on an individual basis. There's no, um, there, there's no government compensation scheme. There's no uh, one, um, one, one size fits all in this. It, it, it really does depend on, on what the contract stipulates. Thank you. 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 Th
Um, and just on the issue, obviously, then Principal Gates has been well highlighted. Do you know of any other either sector or specific lines of products that are being impacted as much as, you know, is there anything else? So there's a lot of talk at the minute about um, things being in, in, in shortage, and, and they're not actually, there's, you know, there's a slight but less choice. But there is plenty of food, um, and I think there, there's a couple of things going on, and, and there's you know, there's like, oh, this is this is uh, Brexit protocol. It's all uh, we're we're going to start. It's not that way at all. So there are uh, some of the GB and UK businesses who are still getting the grips with the new system and the new paperwork, and that will take them a couple of days to get online. But the other thing you got to remember is we're still feeling the effects of the seven days when there weren't movements, uh, GB to EU, and then EU uh, to GB uh, goods coming back. And um, so, you know, all we can say is, is, is bear with us. Um, people need to shop uh, as uh, normal. Um, Uh, good talks with, with uh, Dara as well, 
I'll say it, the master. Um, and it, yeah, it, it, there's it, all these things, you know, as I said, in every meeting and every press release that was put out, you know, we, we said that business wasn't going to be ready. And, uh, and it's quite simply because we didn't have that technical detail. We're talking about changes that would usually take between a year and 18 months to, to embed and work on in, in a, a few short weeks. Now, in saying that, um, supply chains remain uh, robust and we are uh, able to, to, to move things, but there is an awful lot of ironing out uh, to do uh, wrinkles within the system. And I think one of the most important things for us, and I'll go back to that sort of Oliver Twist thing, every time we're given something by UK data, the EU, but go back. Well, so again, we want more uh, because what we're, what we're talking about now is we've got something to get us over the hump and, and to get us over that sort of uh, start. Um, but what we need is a sustainable, workable, and very much simplified system, and um, like that retail movement system that would you know remove any of the sort of uh, any of the sort of uh, friction on SPS and whatever. But that, that's all gonna gonna have to come down the line. And um, what we need to get first is the EU and the UK government sit down with us in January to look at the changes that are coming in in April and how we can make simplifications, allegations, and mitigations for that. Um, I'm going to be working on Brexit until I retire probably, but that's, that's the way that we're sort of looking at this. We need to keep pushing and keep pushing until we get something that works, not only for businesses, but for households in Northern Ireland. Okay, can we... we have, I want to, okay, we have Morris. Morris? Morris? Yeah, can you hear me, Chair? Yeah, go, go ahead, Morris, yeah. Apologies for a uh, very poor internet connection here, but that's, uh, that's the situation we offer to them. Thanks very much, gentlemen, for taking the time to attend today's money meeting, and uh, I'm glad that it's not all doom and gloom, uh, which is refreshing. But there's a question I'd like to ask uh, either Victor or Wesley, and that's uh, something that was raised with here at the start about downloading uh, products. Um, do you think there will be a renewed market in Northern Ireland uh, for produce and purchase dinner produce, which is currently uh, brought in from the mainland? Uh, you mentioned milk, uh, but I'm thinking of other things as well. You know, when I go, not that I do a big lot of supermarket shopping for one person, but when I do, I tend to shop local and buy local produce. Do you see uh, an emerging market for local produce? Yeah, well, maybe take that. One thing, uh, maybe not to do with Brexit, one thing COVID has taught us is uh, the value of shopping local and the local produce. And that's one thing we in a farming community can guarantee our people in Northern Ireland. They won't go hungry. Um, they might not get the variety or they might have to get in season. But, you know, to me, when the borders went totally mad, you're bringing uh, Northern Ireland supply to supply instance of the Cape Chicken. Uh, we know we employ part of one of the standing companies in Northern Ireland supplying chicken, and yet we're all bringing chicken type on and China. Like, I totally agree with Claire there. Where is the you know, or where is the green potential to not? Completely, completely crazy. So, I think a renewed interest in is one of the things that probably COVID has caused. Uh, I know if you look at the TV, uh, all these uh, uh, cooking uh, programs or chef programs or, or or dining program for TV has had a, a resurgence. People are uh, maybe finding that uh, rather than stuff that's put into them and not on to the next job, that they can actually get pleasure out of making good food, wholesome food, and, and, and consuming it. So I, I totally agree with you. I think if there's any good comes out of Brexit, that might be one of the 
they put things that shows that as the stuff's local here, source it local first if you can. But we do provide the Northern Ireland upset, the corn upset in this committee before. We have 24,000 odd farmers, many of them very small and part-time, and yet we produce enough food to feed 10 or 11 million people in the UK. So, you know, we're very proud of what we do, and we are very uh, conscious and glad of our local consumers' uh, support, like yourself, as you're saying, um, by local. And I think if we can get that message through to our uh, uh, supermarkets and our supermarket bosses to say that buy the stuff local where available. Um, it's more resilient, it stands the test of any pandemic or any crisis that uh, still there. So I think that's one of the positives and, uh, and opportunities that can maybe come out of uh, situation we've been in. And it's and starting with another pushback on that a wee bit further. The, the fact is that um, they retail buy about 2.7 billion of Northern Ireland agri food. We buy it where we can, and in fact, we buy uh, a greater proportion than, than anywhere else in, in, in the UK. And I think we can't lose sight that way. Yes, um, it is great to, to buy local. We're already doing that, and we've already uh, grown that market substantially over this past 10 or, or 15 years. It's not as if uh, I don't think give the impression supermarkets were not buying Northern Ireland produce. In fact, one of the things that is so impressive about the canny Northern Ireland shopper is that they do like to see local produce, and that's one of the reasons why uh, we have uh, continued to buy uh, Northern Ireland produce in, in the billions. We, we buy about 2.6 to 2.7 billion, and we only use about, about 700 million, close to a billion here, and the rest of that goes to GB, and that proves the point that you're saying about us being 1.9 million people, but actually feeding uh, 10, uh, 10 million people. So just to, to say that we are buying local. Yeah, uh, just to come, to come in on that, uh, in, in, yeah, I must uh, compliment our supermarkets for uh, you know, supporting British and home park produce. One of the bones of contention we have is that our service industry had not the same uh, loyalty to local people. They seem to think uh, once they cook and put in a plate, it's okay to buy it for whatever's cheapest in the world. And we would like to see our service industry giving us the same support that our retail industry does. I think that uh, actually shows us that in an unfortunate case where we find the lockdown, our prices actually rise because people are buying their, their, their produce and cooking it themselves, and they are more loyal doing it that way than they are when they go out to order a bit of food. So, you know, totally agree with you and thank the retail for their support. Okay, um, uh, Patsy Madlone here looking to ask a question. Patsy? Indeed, um, and thank you to the, I should call them the triumvirate here. They, uh, <laughs> for, for all their, for all their uh, I guess, behind his Mahar and Shin, Ian and Gurley and Ireland. Now, just as I was, as I was listening there, maybe Victor, I'll, I'll talk you through, you mentioned there in the course of your presentation that uh, any animals or any hiccups with animals and GB, um, they can't uh, return for animals. Uh, the first, the first question: what were, what were those hiccups be? Then, secondly, you mentioned about the uh, problems with safety. You give the example of a loaded of beef and the need for the um, support health attestation document. Um, but I have to say, I'm going to flip this one right back. Uh, is that not a question for better quality control? as opposed to a further attestation and further needs for 
the red tape that we're supposed to be getting rid of. Um, uh, that, that's the question, quality control that source in the production in the factory. Um, uh, and the, the, the question that I'd be asking is, if that's happening so repeatedly, which I presume it's not, as to require further documentation, then I'm saying, well, what about that source then? Is there not some taking up message on a source to make sure it's not? Because that's not good for any customer base. And then, um, just a word to Aidan, um, uh, uh, just you were talking about sourcing up deliveries and stuff, and, and your good colleague there, and another extremely well informed source, John Campbell at the, the BBC, has been doing a wee bit of online um, analysis of uh, various retail outlets and the, the, the items that are not available to them. Uh, and one of my colleagues there referred to events not been available. Um, now, what can you give us further detail on that as to where the voids are, where the gaps are? Because you obviously want to avoid panic buying because that's going to just further uh, increase the problem. Yes, yeah, the source of the problem. Now, the final one is just, and um, as Harry has referred to, the uh, margin scheme. Now, the way the, the high profile stuff has been referred to, and that's the, the, the car dealers, uh, second hand car dealers to be specific. I do know that from speaking to accountants here and there, that that does apply to other, maybe less high profile products, second hand products, that may be brought in from GB. So, can you just give us a wee bit more detail on that, please, at the end of it, and thank you again for your time. Yeah, uh, maybe I'll take them from the start. Uh, obviously, again, and thanks for your questions and your interest in, 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 the, in the agriculture industry. Um, the problem with, with cattle returning, um, look, in the pedigree sector, as I've said, you can take a whole lot to sell it. You have rigorous veterinary inspection uh, 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 procedures to, to go through to go into a sale. No matter how much you look at them at home, you know, a vet could look at the thing slightly differently and you could get rejected on inspection. You may not be meet your reserve price, so you may have to bring them home. Or you can you can have bad weather, bad sale for different reasons, and you have to return that animal home. Um, or indeed, another Northern Ireland producer could go over there to buy it. And I know what the basic of that sounds sad, but when you look at the pyramid of breeding, the, the breeds top sales take place in the UK mainland. So that is where you have to really measure up your your the quality of your animal with everybody else's. Mm -hmm. uh, I remember back a uh, year number of years ago, uh, we've been selling cheap over in Barrack and then made a textile sale for years. I remember taking five rounds to the sale in Scotland, the top sale. Those rounds measured up well and that you know when people saw them with everybody else's. Four of those combined to Northern Ireland. But if I had been selling the week before in our sale for the Ireland, those players were they were set on going to the top sale in the UK to buy the sheep. So I wouldn't have those customers at home until they sold them and how they measured up with everybody else in Scotland out in Wales. And as we go forward that can't happen. Because the UK has left uh, the, the, the European Union and because we're in a European zone. One of the things that a vet has to sign now is that the animal has been six months resident in the UK. Northern Ireland animals, as far as I'm aware, do not uh, satisfy that qualification. So there's a, it's not a year, it's a six month residency. So they have to spend six months before they can come home. Now we are 
Copeland and in fact meeting our Bedford Church tomorrow to see if there's any if there's any green areas that we can we can uh, blow around this whereby we've had a, a very good fish pellet system in Northern Ireland and why could they not do the residency by in Northern Ireland? But you know that one of the points out forward whether that gives any traction or not, I've no way of doing it. Your second uh, point uh, on the SHGs and on the light of the loop of beef, yes, we don't want to see stuff return, uh, you know, but this has come up from really the media, who said that they said they beef all the time. For instance, if a lorry is held up at the, at the port and misses the slot, it could be too long in transit. You know, temperature control wasn't just right. There, there's things that could happen to that full load of beef. Um, between the the uh, factory here and the, the receiving end of the other side, and if they go to a high end market, any one of these we we hiccups means rejected load. As that load rejected, maybe bring that aroma that can be brought back to Northern Ireland and be packaged in a different market, and it's okay. But they were saying that you know they pay hundred thousand pounds for beef and that load. If you have that SHA with it, the vet can't sign for that to come home. So you have a load of distressed beef in the UK that you can't take back to Northern Ireland. So you're a very, very weak seller. Basically, anything the UK can give you the lowest price possible. And that is a good option but to accept it. So it's something that I'm bringing forward that we brought up mainly by the our meat sector that this could be an issue. They would rather, they have a bed in advance, they would rather send that SHA out with the load. And, and, and then there's an the option. Now, it's not an option that we want to use. There's no way we want to send our stuff across the ferry and back in the ferry for the, for the sake of it. Yeah. But, uh, you know, just in that exceptional circumstances, you're over a bottle if you haven't got that. And there's no way that that can be done online if required. No. I think that the problem is it can be done retrospectively. It has to be done when the product's there for that bed to sign it. And the point they were making was that the part the the movement assistance scheme pays for the EAC document on the ALAP. But for that the same he has to get the SAT, so it's a part of that document. So why is that not covered in the payment as well? Okay. You should have been on at half an okay. one. So you're only going to have about okay. 40 minutes with them. Okay. Okay, okay then. Hello. Okay. Okay then. Hello. Okay. Okay, folks, I'm going to finish off here because we have the permanent secretary waiting outside the door for. Um, come on next. Um, and again, I want to thank Aidan, Victor and Wesley for making themselves available with such short notice to come to the committee. Um, and I want to thank you very much for your attendance and for a very interesting and informed discussion and I wish you a happy new year, OK? OK, thanks. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank Yeah, I'm just to take a few minutes here just to wee break for it. Five minutes for broadcasting to be back in five minutes. Yeah, for broadcasting to come on back on five minutes. Okay, okay then. Uh, okay, folks, we're going to move on now to the next item on our agenda. Um, <coughs> I'd like to take the opportunity to 
Welcome uh, in person, uh, Dennis McMahon, the Deirdre Permanent Secretary, and Robert Huey, the, the Chief Vet. And by Starleaf, we have Norman Fulton, David Small, and Nicole MacArthur. And again, we're going to get a briefing on the operational and practical issues arising from EU exit. Um, and again, I want to I want to thank you very much for coming at such short notice, and appreciate you are incredibly busy, incredibly busy. So we're very appreciative of that. And understand that this meeting now substitute the meeting that we arranged for next week, the 14th. And I ask that you, um, you know, can you can you um, provide the committee with a written update on the exit matters for our next meeting uh, on the 14th of January and fortnightly thereafter, if that's possible. Um, so I'd be grateful to just take this opportunity now to uh, kick off and outline any issues which could bring to our attention to raising the EU exit, and no doubt after the briefings we got from Seamus and Aidan and the UFU representatives that there will be some questions we want to maybe pick on as well, Dan. So thank you very much. Okay. Thank you very much, Chair. Um, thank you for inviting us back to the committee to give you an urgent update on where we are in relation to the uh, sanitary and phytosanitary SPS operational delivery programme, as well as some of the key emerging issues in terms of EU exit. I realise that you've already had briefing, as you've just mentioned, Chair, uh, from some of our stakeholders, and we really welcome that because it's good to hear it straight from the people who, who are impacted most. Uh, and therefore, we also wish to uh, focus on some of the emerging issues. But before we do, it's probably important to reflect on the breadth of work that has been ongoing across DERA to ensure that we're ready for the end of the transition period. I mean, to ensure that there was a functioning rulebook, an unprecedented 35 UK-wide uh, SIs, statutory instruments, and um, with devolved content, six reserved SIs and 39 um, statutory rules, and the committee's obviously been right in the middle of that as well. That's an unprecedented programme of legislation, and that's all gone through. Um, and DARA is also leading on 15 common frameworks and succeeded in ensuring that 14 of those achieved provisional status by the end of December. So it's just to kind of put it in context that this is the focus at the minute, but there's an awful lot of other work that's going on alongside that. So it's important to state that we're less than one week into the new arrangements. Our people, our stakeholders in the wider industry are in the very early stages of adjusting to what is a new reality. I say this because whatever briefing we provide you with today must be understood on the basis that it reflects a point in time as we move towards a new equilibrium. equilibrium. Robert will provide you with a specific update on the operational issues that he and his team have tackled from the 1st of January 2021. But before he does, I'd like to remind the committee of just where we got to in the last seven months. When we came, came to see the committee on the 4th of June 2020, we explained that it had not been possible to take forward the necessary work um, without basic clarity from the UK government. This had not even been received, this had not been received until the 20th of May 2020. And it was on this basis that the Northern Ireland Executive and DARA were able to move forward. The programme of work began with a red-amber delivery status rating, and within weeks it moved to a red rating. That meant that it was, in effect, not possible to deliver the, the original pro programme for two reasons. One, there was a live negotiation process underway between the UK and the EU, and two, the scale of what we were trying to achieve. Specifically, in seven months, we were seeking to deliver the people, processes, information technology and infrastructure necessary to conduct SPS checks as specified in EU legislation and specifically our obligations under the Official Controls Regulation or the OCR, which is built into UK Westminster law. So, um, so 
It's, it's just to say that's, that's what's driving this. So since it was not possible to deliver the full programme of infrastructure by that date, we put in place contingency arrangements involving all of the elements that I've already mentioned, that is people, processes, information, technology and temporary infrastructure. And at this point, I want to pay tribute to everybody involved in what has been a monumental programme of work. This has frankly taken every, everything we have to deliver. The people who have been at the heart of this programme put every ounce of their personal effort into it, and in some cases, I have to say, their well-being. And um, I count and the people who are on the call today, and I count the gentleman to my right, uh, because people have done absolutely everything in their power to get this to work. Through this, they met the objectives in what was hopefully a once-in-a-lifetime global pandemic, so as if we didn't have enough. I also want to thank our partners who have worked closely with us throughout this process, in particular the Food Standards Agency in Northern Ireland, the District Councils, HMRC, Border Force and Police Service for Northern Ireland, as well as a number of key government departments, not least DEFRA, um, whose officials have consistently worked with us throughout. I'd especially like to thank all the business representatives who've worked so closely with us since the beginning of this process, and we have, and I think you probably have got a flavour of that, we have continuous engagement with them. So while there have inevitably been teething problems and nobody expected otherwise, the effort to get to this point has been an excellent example of partnership working. But we won't shy away from the problems, the general problems and, and any problems arising with our piece of this big jigsaw. My message to you is that, as we warned last year, this would be a bumpy process. In fact, I think Robert first said it, and that has been the case. But we will work continuously to improve the service over the coming weeks and months, where that is in our control. To set our evidence in context, I think it's important just to look again at the, the, the elements of this. So there are three stages in the SPS checking process. These are documentary, identity and physical checks. So on documentary checks, we, ha we now have, as we speak, a team in place in Larne undertaking the do uh, documentary checks remotely as we speak. They're doing this on a 24-hour, seven-day week, ba week basis and are clearly supplementing their additional training with additional learning on the job. On identity checks, we have people in place in Cairn Ryan, Birkenhead and Haysham ready to undertake on identity checks using seals placed on the freight units. I'll update you in a moment on how that's going. And physical checks. Um, we have very high quality temporary facilities in place and these were handed over to veterinary service colleagues for use in physical checks ahead of the 1st January 2021 deadline. That was a matter of weeks. So just to give you a sense of what's gone, gone into this, I have to give full credit to people for that. We have initial staff rotas filled and colleagues are working well together. When we updated you before the holidays, we made it clear that while the elements were in place, the major challenge was ensuring that they all work together as one coherent system. I'm pleased to say that this is happening, certainly in terms of the, the, the areas of work that we're controlling. And I've been very impressed by the way that people have come together and demonstrated their professionalism. Furthermore, the IT systems in Northern Ireland are working well, given the very short timescale we've had to de develop and implement those systems. There are, of course, minor glitches, which you'd expect, but I have to say, our, even our, our local chip system, which works along with traces, is working well. In line with the Chief Entry Officer's compliance protocol, the intention was to provide some space for businesses to come to terms with the new arrangements. And essentially the intention was to do the documentary checks and the seal checks to confirm the identity of the consignments. And if there was a failure to comply, provide the businesses with some advice and a compliance note. And I think as you've heard, there's been a lot of advice given. In fact, more than advice, we've, frankly, we've been helping people to do some of the, the actual paperwork themselves. That's basically what, what's happened. 
Robert will talk in more detail about what has happened to date, but essentially due to the uncertainty arising from the negotiation process and the extremely short period of time between the final agreement and going live, businesses were not prepared as well as they would have wished. This meant that we could not carry out all documentary checks electronically, pre-notifications were not happening to the required degree, and seals were not in place, routinely in place to be checked. That in turn we meant we had some challenges related, relating to COVID-19 safety requirements in light of the need to use paper documentation and manual workarounds. It also meant that identity checks could not happen at GB ports in the way that we'd hoped. So these teething problems have also been affected by a delay in the delivery of HMRC systems, and I think you've heard some of that already, and there was a lot of discussion about TSS as well, um, which means that we've had to improvise a way of identifying freight units from the ship's manifest before the arrival of the units into Northern Ireland. The idea was to, to identify any relevant vehicles and direct them to our point of entry facilities. There we could do a quick check, and most of them are quick, of the paperwork and a short identity check. However, the low level of compliance and the provision of basic uh, paperwork meant that initially there was a need to check larger volumes of materials. Are we necessarily surprised or alarmed by any of this? No, we knew that it would take some time for businesses to adjust to the new requirements. Indeed, on the 5th of November, I, I made it very clear that um, the paperwork would need to be produced in GB and there would need to be the support for that when I came, came to the committee. So um, the systems we put in place are fundamentally sound. And when businesses make the necessary adjustments to routines, it will make life easier for us. Now, remember here I'm talking about SPS. There's a wider, a wider business issue, um, which work, which is primarily around, uh, you know, the, the issue around um, trade and uh, the compliance around HMRC uh, protocols. So we've been very heartened by the constructive responses of businesses who have, on the whole, been very happy to work with us. These businesses have significantly improved their compliance, even in the short time that we've been up and running, which in turn means that we're able to stop fewer vehicles using a risk-managed approach, and indeed we're doing that. It's important to note that as of this point in time, we have undertaken very few physical checks on goods, concentrating instead on facilitating traders to put in place pre-notification and completion of the necessary certification. This reflects our desire to meet the joint objectives of keep, keeping trade moving while complying with the law. Many of these issues will be ironed out quickly. It's therefore our intention to move to a position where freight units can travel with as little friction as possible, but there are some significant issues which will not be as easy to address in the short term and will need to be a focus over the coming months together with the UK Government. These include the complex, complexity of logistic chains and in particular the impact of customs arrangements operating through Dublin, coming to, moving to GB and vice versa. Two, difficulties for hauliers in the certification and sealing of groupage loads in GB, and again, you've heard some of that. We're working closely with them on that as far as, again, we can around operational arrangements, but I think, as you've heard this morning, there are other things that can be done outside of that. And three, the need to prepare for the end of the three-month grace period when supermarket consignments will be subject to the full SPS checking regime. So, in summary, there's been a monumental effort on behalf of a lot of people in DERA, in the business community, and across a range of public sector bodies. I'm very proud of the team and the work they've put in for the people of Northern Ireland. There have been short-term teething problems, as we expected, and these are being resolved as we speak, as far as we can resolve them. <coughs> Businesses are adjusting rapidly to the new requirements and deserve huge credit for that, and they're doing it in partnership with us. And in fact, after this session this afternoon, we've got another one of our information sessions with businesses, um, where we've got currently the last I heard was about 360 people signed up to it. 
But now the heavy lifting must happen in GB, um, as I think you've heard this morning. And uh, I suppose I want to leave you before I hand over, if you don't mind, Chair, I'd like to just give, Robert can give you a brief update on the numbers. But I suppose a bit just before I do that, just to say, really we have done our bit and people have gone so far above and beyond the call of duty, I can't praise them enough for it. That's not to say it's going to be perfect, but they have. Um, and I just want to say, I think just Robert can maybe talk you through just where, where we are in terms of the, the actual process and the numbers. Robert, over to you. Sorry, Chair, with your permission, Chair, if that's okay. Thanks, Secretary. Um, my colleagues will look to the stars when I repeat my favourite quote, which is General Helmut von Moltke, a Prussian general, who said, uh, no plan ever survives first contact with the enemy. And we had a plan, and it didn't survive first contact with the enemy in this case. So our plan was very heavily based around pre-notification so that we didn't know what was coming. And then, on the basis of that pre-notification and sealing of containers, checks being carried out on GB and then us being able to select a, a number for physical checks in Northern Ireland. Well, that didn't even get started because a very high percentage of traders had not been able to or known how to uh, pre-notify. So on day one, on the 1st of January, um, we had to dump the plan and go back to the more traditional method of having uh, going through the manifest to identify you know, likely, likely uh, SPS goods and pull those off the end of the ramp, uh, those lorries off the end of the ramp, and to then um, go through with the drivers and with the uh, consignors and consignees of those consignments the process of getting them pre-notified, getting the right paperwork in place, and then letting them go as quickly as possible. And that is more or less what we've been doing uh, this week. Now, that is what we expected to do this week, to some extent, and that's what that why I produced this compliance document, which is on the internet for everyone to see, which basically said that for the first week, we would not be enforcing uh, rigorously. Now, I didn't think that the length, the amount of support the industry would need from us, would be as extensive as it has been, uh, but that's what my staff have been doing is identifying on the manifest and uh, selecting those, and not all of them by any means, and, uh, and trying to work with those traders in order to get their systems in place. And I have to say that um, that hasn't been difficult because the traders have wanted our help and have welcomed our help. Uh, we've had workshops with small groups of uh, particular, um, particular types of trader. So we've worked with the supermarkets We've worked with their agents because there, uh, uh, a lot of traders work through agents, uh, agro and folks like that. And then we've worked, um, particularly for the last two or three days, with the hauliers, who you've heard of from this morning, uh, trying to deal with, uh, with their issues. Uh, and, and across the hauliers, a vast range of different models that they, that they work to. Uh, so, have we made progress? Uh, I think we have. And... Um, the level of compliance has gradually increased over the week. When will we start regulating and bringing in controls properly? It was planned for tomorrow. Uh, I'll need to have another think about how we actually move now onto the controls uh, properly, the identity, the documentary and the physical checks. Uh, and it will be gradual uh, because different people are able to comply at different speeds. And, uh, 
obviously if someone has come through the port several times and uh, have been talked through the process several times and are, are choosing not to comply, well that seems like someone who needs some robust action taken, where someone who turns up for the first time, a sole trader who hasn't been trading yet, um, that's, a, that's a different story. One of the difficulties with planning this project all along is that our data was very poor. We didn't really know what to expect on day one. Uh, but we did know being the 1st of January and a public holiday that it wouldn't be representative of what was coming. So people had already um, stockpiled some, some product in Northern Ireland. Um, others have put off um, moving, moving their goods. For example, we've had no animals yet, and I don't expect any animals for a week or two because people are waiting to see what happens and to see how, they, how the, the processes um, shake out. Our first animals actually are chicks coming in tomorrow or today. Forget what day it is. And just the figures up to date. Yesterday we checked 101 retail vehicles and 32 non-retail vehicles. Um, it was the numbers that we did yesterday. And on, on day two, day one is an odd day. We only did th um, 40 or so altogether. Day two was 82 and 7. 82 retail and 7. So you can see that we're, we're getting through a higher percentage, um, but at the same time there are more vehicles coming through the ports now, and I expect uh, that that will increase again next week. So staff are gradually um, getting to a position where um, there is sufficient compliance across the industry that we can start going back to the original plan, uh, and that will start tomorrow. So tomorrow, today, um, the, the staff in Cairn Ryan who do the seal checks are finding that they can do it. We did more training with them yesterday uh, to make sure that they're ready to go today, and that's happening today. Documentary checks, as the Secretary said, uh, that's going well um, with a team of admin staff in Larne are doing that job. Um, so the pieces are coming together. Uh, it's just uh, a matter of, of time and giving um, the industry time to adjust to this monumental change. Okay. Thank you, okay. Chair. Thank you very much. And I think it would be important to say that um, we we appreciate them and we don't underestimate uh, know the amount of work that you guys have personally put in and the, the way that you've been um, working above and beyond the call of duty to get us prepared for what you described there, Robert, as a monumental change. Um, in terms of the... Um, the, the, the checks, there's, 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 there's some business uh, I want to ask, you know, there's obviously, you know, the, the full rigorous enforcement hasn't kicked in as yet and, you know, and I noted that in one of the reports of a ferry come in that there was six out of the 15 vehicles that was taken through the, the control post. Um, would yourselves be confident that whenever the full flow of trade would commence later on this month that the, the department systems are ready to absorb that there and handle that increased trade? Yeah. If we were trying to do what we're trying to do now, no. Um, but I'm confident that with the level of compliance we're getting to now, that we'll be able to go back to what our original plan was. Because there's reasons why companies want to comply. I've made it clear that, particularly the retail, if they have pre-notified and they have a retail cert on the system, and they have a seat in the vehicle, that's it. Drive on. 
no other checks required, uh, at least at this early stage. Um, I may have to do the very occasional physical check at some stage, but as far as I'm concerned, if the retailers have, have pre-notified us, allowing us to do the, the check of the certificate online, the so-called CHED, and uh, there's a seal so that I don't have to do an identity check, which ties the certificate to the goods, then there is, there is no friction. Um, uh, we'll do that seal check in Cairn Ryan or in Hesham or in Liverpool, and the vehicle can drive on. Now, that immediately takes away half the volume if the retail is done properly. Um, now, I'm not underestimating the difficulties which the haulage have, and that's why we've been putting an awful lot of time into it. And there's a lot of, an awful lot of different models, you know, from the, the small lorry, you know, one or two lorry organisations who make their, their living out of going from, you know, 12, 12 pickups and three deliveries of, of six or seven different commodities. Very, very difficult model. But working with them, these companies will come up with the answers, and we are helping them to address and to mitigate those risks. The big companies, um, they almost have a, a different challenge with the volumes, uh, but they have the, the, the infrastructure, as you've heard about, to set up hubs that can move this stuff um, as, as single consignments uh, with the right certification. There is an issue with veterinary capacity to carry out uh, the, the certification, but having spoken to some veterinary suppliers, um, you know, I think the market will look after that. Uh, and, and remember, the certification in GB is supported by the MAS scheme. So the veterinarian carrying out the certification can apply straight to the scheme to be paid, doesn't charge the operator or the trader, charges government directly for the costs of doing that certification. So there's no administration for the business involved in that, to my understanding. So don't underestimate any of the challenges still ahead of us. Um, but we've climbed a fair mountain this week. Um, and, and with the industry, we're, we've made great, great progress towards compliance. Um, some of these systems on my side are not that complicated. But it does, uh, it does present a considerable challenge when you lay the, the customs HMRC processes on top of them. And uh, you know, we do work in silos to some extent in government. And you know, I'm confident in what I'm doing. But although we're working with HMC, HMRC and with Border Force on the ground, I can't speak eloquently about um, HMRC Border Force uh, processes, which seem just unbelievably complex to me. Um, just, I'll just mention another question before I move around the room. Um, I want to make the point that you said there that a very high percentage of traders didn't pre-notify, and I think that that would tally with what was said to us previously by the Brexit working group and by the hauliers, and it just looks like to me that the Trader Support Service didn't do its job, that the preparation, um, the prepara there hasn't been adequate, uh, it's been a disaster in Britain, preparation has not, there's been no proper preparation in Britain by the Trader Support Services to get um, um, shops and retail outlets ready for this year, and it looks to me that um, the dairy here, yourselves, 
is is paying the price for that in terms of having to absorb that extra piece of work, and and that's um, it's an extra obviously an extra stress in your own system and and fair play to for being able to handle it. But the the one thing I will ask is, um, Robert, you mentioned a while ago there that the um, the rigorous enforcement regime was to kick in this week, um, but that may need to be reviewed. Now I'm conscious that obviously it's important that we protect the integrity of the single market and our place within that there and also the fact that there are EU officials who are present to monitor the situation. What precise level of flexibility do you have there in terms of that enforcement regime uh, until um, businesses and retail adjust to the new um, arrangements? Legally, I have none. Um, operationally, I have some. And that has come uh, around by the way in which we've done this, in that we've never said we'll be perfect from day one. Uh, that was uh, precisely what my compliance protocol was for, was so that everybody, including the EU, would be aware of the approach we were taking. And you've heard me on the word sensitive, pragmatic and sensible when it comes to enforcement. That does not mean no enforcement, and don't let anybody think it does. But it means that we will enforce where it's appropriate to do so. And there has been no physical checks yet, and there has been no containers sent back yet. But I am certain that it will happen. And that a huge kerfuffle will be made in the press when it does happen. Um, but we, we have, just to be absolutely clear, we haven't sent anything back yet. There have been one or two who went back because they decided to do that, and that's a commercial decision um, to do that. Uh, but we haven't actually sent anybody back. What we're doing is taking the time, and sometimes it takes an inordinate amount of time, um, to work through with the, with the, with the consignment, um, with the operator, um, the process, and get them onto the system, get them pre-notified, get them a certificate, tell them how to get it, how to fill it out, take them through the, the detail. And um, I have a member of staff who has literally sat uh, with supermarkets and with others and filled in their forms for them to show them how to do it. And one of the supermarkets, just to give you an idea of this, uh, was taking, initially, they started, it took 10 minutes to do a shed. By the time he was finished with them, they were doing them in three minutes. So this is, you know, at one stage, it is difficult. It's like filling in any form until you know what goes in what box. But once you've done it, it's a process, it's a repeat process, and it's doable. So the fact that when you know what you're doing, you can fill in one of these sheds in three minutes does not sound like onerous bureaucracy to me. And that's all I want you to do. Pre-notify, fill in part one of the shed, um, stick a seal in the back of the lorry, uh, get, your, you know, get your search signed. So that's what we're asking for, and, and we'll do it. But the, the, the question, um, um, Chair, around when is the full enforcement regime going to come in? It'll come in gradually. It will probably start from tomorrow. That doesn't mean anybody will come back from tomorrow, but we will start uh, winding it up um, because I have to... My two objectives throughout this, and it's good to have objectives because you can keep your eye on them, is to keep the law and keep stuff going, keep stuff moving. And they're both equally important. We have to keep food and goods and raw materials flowing into Northern Ireland, not just to keep food on shelves, but to keep industry working and to keep raw materials flowing. And that's what we've been trying to do.
Uh, Robert, uh, we will move to Morris. Morris, can you hear us? Yeah, sorry, sorry, Chair. You're right, uh, Morris, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, thanks very much, gentlemen, for uh, coming from the Kelly this morning and giving us a very detailed brief. Uh, I've come to what we already heard, and it raises many, many issues. But uh, can I, I offer my congratulations to the entire team to an extremely onerous workload uh, to try and ensure a workable transition? And as has been alluded to, there are quite a few bumps on the road. Uh, Section C to be efficiently in place in the Northern Ireland side regarding document identity and physical uh, checks. But there seems to be a lack of urgency on the mainland to complement the efforts and diligence of the dear officials this side of the Irish Sea. Uh, like everyone present here today, I'm disappointed that there seems to be a lack of equal commitment on mainland side. Uh, this is a disappointment, and no doubt we will hear more from our dear officials on, on, on progress in the coming weeks ahead. But at uh, one point, Robert made reference to the little movement in the Northern Ireland in regards of, uh, to livestock. However, I'd like to ask about pet passports, uh, a lot of queries from pet owners. There now seems to be a requirement for dogs travelling between Northern Ireland and to be a pet passport at a cost of £120 per dog. I've also been advised that any dog returning to ENA from GB needs to have its passport stamped to evidence the fact that it has received its tapeworm vaccination, which will need to be administered by a vet in GB before returning to Northern Ireland. This creates extra expense, uh, not just for the pet passport, but also vaccination and the time frame required to get a vet to administer the vaccination. Can this be addressed in uh, future negotiations? In any way? This is. Uh an issue we've known about for for some years. And we worried last year uh, when we were looking at a, a land border about movement on the island of Ireland uh, and movement of pets on the island of Ireland and the disruption that would cause. So this is an issue that has already been in negotiations. Um, it was one of the issues that was discussed. Um, it's been um, dealt with at a technical level um, by, by my colleagues, by myself and my colleagues. And um, we have got nowhere throughout all of that, despite um, lots of false stones and thinking that we would, would get to a, a good place on it. In fact, when it came to listing GB, which is the important thing here, as a, as, as a, a, in, under the PETS legislation, um, we did not get list one, which we think we can justifiably get, but we got list two, which basically meant that the full gambit of the pets requirements uh, fell upon um, Great Britain. Now, what do we have? We have freedom of movement of pets on the island of Ireland, and we have free movement of pets from Northern Ireland to GB. But what we do have is the full gambit of requirements between GB and Northern Ireland, which involves um, vaccination, a tapeworm tablet every time you're going to travel. Uh, it requires an animal health certificate from a vet every time you want to move rather than a pet passport. And it is onerous and it is expensive. And in my view, it's unnecessary. So we have a piece of law here which I have to keep, which my minister has voiced his opposition to very vocally. My minister has written to um, both 
um, uh, Minister Eustace, Secretary of State Eustace in, in London and, and now to the EU about it. And we will continue to work on it. We have a hope on these islands for a, a common travel area for pets as we have for people. But I cannot hold out any prospect that that is going to happen very, very soon. And that this is just going to be wiped away. There is within the pets legislation a paragraph, Article 16, which allows for this sort of arrangement uh, for freedom of movement of pets, for example, between uh, Norway, an EEA country, and Sweden, and between other small countries like Andorra uh, and their neighbouring countries, Spain and, and France. Uh, but so there is a model um, to look at here. The fact we haven't rabies on these islands, uh, the fact that Ireland is free from Echinococcus multilocaris, which is the name of the, the parasite we're talking about, should make this doable. Uh, but it's in, uh, I'm afraid it's in the hand of the political world, and uh, it will have to be dealt with um, through the political process. And uh, I'm hopeful that that will happen but it's not going to happen soon, which means that, again in my protocol, uh, I've said that we aren't going to implement enforcement until the 1st of February to give people a chance to get ready. I was concerned about people who had taken their pet to GB over the Christmas period and couldn't get back. Um, I was concerned, as a number of people have raised, about the problems around assistance dogs, both guide dogs and wider assistance dogs, and uh, the issue around uh, puppy walking in Northern Ireland for the, for the, for the guide dog associations. Uh, and all those are issues which we need to deal with. And we have been talking to the interested groups for some time, trying to find a way through this. I was hopeful that at an operational level, I would be able to find some room for pragmatism, but the legislation is written in a very black and white way. I can find no wiggle in it at all. So I have no alternative but to enforce this legislation, but again, we'll be doing it sensitively, pragmatically, uh, and sensibly as far as we can. But um, I am not happy with the situation that we find ourselves in. My minister isn't happy with the situation we find ourselves in, and we'll be doing all we can to try and mitigate um, this problem. But I don't want to give anyone the impression that this is easy. This is a piece of European legislation. Thanks very much. Uh, Robert, uh, I hear a lot of talk uh, recently about uh, Britain failing in the negotiations, but in any negotiation, there are two sides, and one side is, is equally guilty as the other, or innocent as the other. So I would bear that in mind that it's EU regulation that, uh, that has introduced this here. Well, thank you very much for that comprehensive answer, Robert. Thank you. Thank you. Morris, uh, William? Thank you, Mr. Chairman, and, and, and just on touching that, and Robert gave a, a very wide answer to that, and I have been approached too by gun dogs. Uh, they must go to, for to England for shoots and one thing or another. Um, is it right that they have to get a permit before they leave here, or is it does that cost one hundred and twenty pounds, or is it 
that to get the permit on the return. I just wasn't clear on that. No, it's they can get there. Okay, it's coming back as the problem. Yeah. Um. So, um, it'll have to be uh, some thinking put into how that can be done. You know, if a, a gun club is going over, how can they all be done at the one time to try and and make it as as a uh, as as streamlined as possible? Uh, but this again, we're talking about new processes, new challenges. This is a whole new one. Um, I'm I'm hoping that we can work with you know the, the different canine groups. There are people who go to GB for other sporting purposes for for um, for, for various canine events um, and also for of course the shows and it's important uh, to them and and as a key part of their social so the social fabric. Um, so we need to find ways around this that. Um, but I have to be realistic and say that I don't see a solution in weeks or months. That's unfortunate, but it just seems so crazy to the average person. In relation to, we know that there's a free movement of goods and produce from here into the mainland at the moment, so there's no issues with that, I think, I'm aware. Um, in relation to goods entering Northern Ireland from the UK, and if the paperwork is all in place. Uh, what level of checks then? If, if everyone is there, if, if we get to a stage where people are there, people work in place. Who decides or what is it then checked or what level of checks will there be? Okay. <laughs> this is the official control regulations, <laughs> and there's a lot of detail in here. And part of the detail that you find in here is a table, which lays out for you in excruciating detail the level of checks you have to do for each commodity. Live animals require 100% checks. There are other groups of commodities that require 30% checks, for example, um, red meat. And then there are some that only require 1% of checks. And uh, we have an electronic system called CHIP, uh, which is programmed with these frequencies. And um, they do a random selection of, of the checks to be done. With live animals, it's easy. They all have to be done. Uh, but with other commodities, they do less. Now, Within the legislation, um, one of the flexibilities um, that the Commission explained to us, and I have to say the Commission have helped us with finding flexibility, was that on the basis of, a, basis of a risk assessment, you can deviate from the levels of checks that are that are laid out in legislation. And that's what we have done with supermarket goods. We've had a very comprehensive um, risk assessment and uh, actually carried out by a, a very experienced person in, in DEFRA, did it for us. I'll name her, Helen Roberts did it for us, someone who's well respected by the EU. And on the basis of that risk assessment, I can deviate downwards um, from uh, the 1% to way below that. And that's my intention, even after the various periods of de the declaration, uh, to do with supermarket goods. Because if the, if the consigner has designated that they're all EU eligible, uh, there is no risk to either the single market, to public health, to plant health, or, or, or to animal health. So, to summarise, the frequencies laid down in, in legislation, you can deviate from those frequencies. You can deviate both upwards and downwards. Uh, the selection is random, so that no one can feel picked on. And, and then, uh, I don't want to hold you. Uh, uh, I want to thank you for that. I didn't admit it to you at the start, but for the hard work I know you've done a nightmare scenario situation for you, I understand that. 
a lot of hard work has been put into it. Um, but I, I, you say there's nothing that's been sent back to England as yet, and that's good. Um, if goods were transferred over over the New Year period and they left England on, on the Saturday or on the Thursday uh, of the New Year's Day, what was the current situation on that in transfer goods? When you arrive, if you arrive after 11, 11 p.m. on the 31st, you're subject to full checks. Now, having said that, um, we were taking our pragmatic view, um, but there were vehicles that we asked to sort out their paperwork because they had they had misunderstood that they <coughs> were okay as long as they left GB. No, it's, it's uh, when you arrive. I had one such, and I'm maybe aware of that. Such, such a personally aware of almost all of them. <laughs> 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 but um, actually, with that group of traders, um, um, my deputy Brian Ducher got together with that particular group of traders um, on the Saturday night, and uh, they were feeling um, not particularly upset with us. Um, but was set with third-party companies that they had expected to do the paperwork for them and had been let down because the paperwork hadn't been done. So it's, a, it's just part of the complexity of this thing. Uh, one of the ways, I said, is get, of getting around this paperwork is to get a third party to do it for you, classically a customs agent who then does the SPS paperwork as well. But if, if, they, if they get overwhelmed, as I think some have, uh, that causes me problems because the, the cheds haven't been completed. Okay. Thanks for that there. Um, Robert, Rosemary. Thank you. Thank you, gentlemen, for all the work that you've done. I know it has been a mammoth task and come to terms with it and get us all going. Um, I had a, I've had a, quite, a lot of, uh, quite a lot of communications in relation to dogs. Um, but one of the communications I had was concerns in relation to the over-medication of dogs. People moving, moving back and forth from Scotland, you know, foot passengers, you know, bringing their wee dog over for a weekend. Especially, a lot of people have moved back and forth from Scotland quite, quite, quite often. And there is that problem, you know, bringing the dog back, etc. This is a, a concern that I first heard uh, from my veterinary colleagues uh, when they met the minister about over-medication unnecessary medication because of course in one of my other priorities in antimicrobial resistance and anti-parasite resistance I'm trying to encourage um, both livestock farmers um, equine owners and, and pet owners uh, not to over medicate or not to unnecessarily medicate their animals and here we are vaccinating animals for a disease they don't have and putting in uh, anti-parasite drug for a parasite we don't have I started by saying I have difficulties with this all. Uh, I have difficulties with all this, particularly as the person who has to uh, enforce it. But all I can do uh, is to reassure you that um, it's not just one of those words. We will do everything we can to try and mitigate the effects and find a resolution. Um, we are looking, trying to mitigate, and we are trying to find a resolution. And. Um, uh, with, particularly with my CVO colleagues in London and Dublin, they are they are well aware of this issue and uh, wish to find an answer. And my understanding is there is a legislative way in which an answer could be found through the EU legislation. Have a look at Article 16 if you are sad enough to read my legislation. 
No, what, what, it, we're, when we're in the EU, EU, we were always told about, they were so concerned about the welfare of animals and the movement of animals and the welfare. And here we have, this actually is a, wel is a welfare issue that needs, uh, needs and, to be and addressed. Look, at, in negotiations so far, when it comes to these sorts of issues, uh, we haven't yet been able to get past the UK chose to leave the EU and they were aware of the consequences when they did it and this is one of them. So um, that is the opening remark in virtually any of these conversations about um, difficulties that we're facing. Now that day will pass and it will pass quite quickly and then we can get down to as technical people talking about technical problems. And my firm conclusion is yes, some will have to be solved at a political level and can only be solved at a political level, but there's a lot can be done when technical people get together and talk common sense. <coughs> and I'm hoping that's where this is going to be done. These aren't strange people we're talking to, these are fellow veterinarians who understand the issues and understand our language. What, just, just one more question, what would, the dif what would the difference be if we had have been included in list one? In list you, one. you referred to list one and list two. We are a list two category. What would the difference have been in relation to pets then? Nope. It would be list one. You'd still need vaccination, uh, but there would be more flexibility with the paperwork. Yeah. So your passport would have done instead of an animal health certificate and having to go and get an animal health certificate yeah. and having to get uh, wormed every time. So there'd be more flexibility. And it may be we have to go stepwise and we, we, we try to get part one first to make it easier uh, before we can get to my ultimate, ultimate objective and that of the ministers, which is a common travel area, so that there is no ambiguity and people can move their, their pets around these islands. So just that leads me on just one more question. I had a lot of queries about can I bring my dog across to the beach? You haven't had as many queries, Rosemary, as I have. Pardon? No, no problem then bringing dogs into the into the south. None at all. Not at all. I'm bringing them home so, that same evening, you know, a couple of hours. Not, you can go to Dunfanach and walk on the beach. There's <laughs> not a problem. <laughs> Thank you. So just but I'll say it again, just yeah. to be clear. Um, free movement of pets on the island of Ireland, free movement from Northern Ireland to GB. Yeah. The only place where we have a fetter, to use the language, is between Back. GB and Northern Ireland. I think, Thanks. Could, could I just add something generally? It's just I'm aware we're referring, for example, to EU regulations and various different elements. It's just important to say the reason, you know, the rationale for doing this programme, and we talked about it at previous committee hearings, but it's worth stating it, saying it again, is because these things are built into UK law. So the Official Controls Regulation, which, is, um, which Robert quoted from there, is actually UK law. That's part of it. It becomes part of it. So it's just, just to say that. That's, so in case people get the impression they're listening to this, that we're sort of making it up as we go along, in a sense, or listen, just doing this because it's in the UK regulation. Thanks. Thank you, Chair. And thank you, Dennis and Robert and um, Norman and Nicole online there. Um, I couldn't do without saying much appreciation for all you have done. I mean, you and your team have more than went the extra mile and really excelled. Um, you have said, Robert, it would be a bumpy ride, and no doubt it has been a bit. 
It's obviously down to because others haven't done their jobs, possible, you know, and the extent they should have has made your life more difficult at present. So hopefully you've been lenient on a few things and, and that's tightened up. Um, it will get better. Um, can I just go on to dogs? Again, I know everybody's talking about dogs today, but we've pets and we have show dogs and um, gun dogs, all sorts. But the one that gets me is the assistant dogs. You know, is there no leniency here and no difference for those? Because, I mean, blind people can't really do without them and really should not be penalised at all. Well, just in hand over to Robert, who's going to talk about that, I'll just say this is something that is really exercising our minister. So uh, I'll yeah. just say that very straight. OK, OK. Um, Robert, do you want to...? So. All I can say is to emphasise that we have been dealing with the assistant dog community um, for some weeks and have been meeting with them um, over Christmas uh, once it became clear what the legislation ha had said and what we were going to have to do. We will find a way around this um, or through it. Um, and, uh, you know, we, I have to try and balance. Uh, the, what the law says with what um, the assistance dog community require. And we are actively working on that. Um, all I will say is that no genuine assistance dog will be turned back. We will find a way of doing it. Good. And I don't want to say much more because I'd be admitting to breaking the law. Yeah. So I'm not going to go there, but they're not. No assistance dog. Now, um, there are all sorts of assistance dogs. There are people, there are animals that help people with their stress levels and that sort of stuff. So I'm not going to buy everything being an assistance dog. Um, you know, I'm, I have some integrity in this thing. No. But your genuine assistance dog will not be turned back. Yeah. Um, we will find a way to deal with that. No, that's, I mean, that's great news. That's one of the idea, because you know yourself. Dogs are people's eyes at times, and yeah. Yeah, appreciate that. Thank you, thank, thank you, sir. Thank you, Robert. Um, Hatsi, Hatsi, hello, can you hear me there? No, I'm on uh, okay there, chair. Yep, Hatsi, absolutely. Uh, thanks very much, chair. Um, thanks very much to all the, the officials there for for the work that they've done and the circumstances they've been under. But um, but just picking up a wee bit further on the last point of Harry's issue about game dogs. Um, there's a particular issue that we've been contacted about, I think maybe the, the committee has too, possibly, <clears throat> and that's getting dog pups, uh, I think maybe there's a particular name for them, uh, coming in from the UK here. Um, I don't know how they are or what way that's covered. And I've also been contacted by the BASC, which is the British Association for Shooting and Conservation. Uh, one, one of their members have been in touch. And uh, he goes over obviously to, to Scotland and gets a guy to do the shooting and brings five dogs with him. Now, the capacity of that there to cost him is £120 per dog, um, which is pretty expensive. Um, can you maybe expand a wee bit further on it for you, Robert? Um, do, do dogs come back? Do they have to have rabies vaccinations uh, and do they need to be um, 12 weeks old prior to any vaccination? And is there tapeworm treatments on the legs that figured into it all as well? Um, I'm asking you because you're, you're the expert in all these things. I'm trying to leave a in this stuff. Okay. So, um, 
there's a requirement for a current valid vaccination. Um, yes. Now, off the top of my head, but let's say the vaccine lasts a year. So if you're traveling three or four times a year, you don't need a vaccine each time, you just need a current vaccination. Uh, but what, okay. you do, what you do need each time is a tapeworm tablet and you do need an animal health certificate, um, uh, which will, will cost. Uh, but if dogs are going in a group of dogs, um, you know, in a shooting party, I'm sure someone within that group will be able to do a, a group negotiation with the vet who's carrying out the work to get the prices, get the prices down a bit. That would make sense. But, you know, I'm finding myself saying the rules is the rules, and that's where, that's where we're at here until we get some legislative change uh, or get some status change. Um, and at least if we could get to part one, as we were talking about earlier on, it would get rid of the requirement for an animal health certificate each time. And I think that's our first objective, then the longer objective of, of having a more, a more pragmatic, sensible regime. Are you getting positive things about that, or are you, are you hopeful, or are you getting positive things? Um, I know there's a bit of a, we use that word, transition from one to the other. Um, have you got Robert? I have got positive vibes from the CVOs on these islands, um, and it hasn't yet been raised in detail with technical experts in the EU beyond what happened during negotiations. That is still to come, but I suspect that that will be a difficult and protracted argument because they're they're, they're making a a derogation from a rule uh, from yes. the norm, and that's why I keep coming back to my Article 16 is that there is something within the European legislation which allows for freedom of movement of dogs, for example, uh, for example between Italy and Vatican City. You don't have to vaccinate your dog between you when you go from Italy to Vatican City or from France to Andorra. So you know there are, there is a precedent for this, and when there's a precedent, it, it is easier to find a way through that uh, when speaking with the Commission. But okay. I, 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 it's not weeks, um, probably not months. This this could take a while. Okay, thanks for that. Now two more uh, queries, Chair. Um, one is uh, well, it's not really the most I'll be interrogated, but it is I think that about two months ago. Um, what sort of tech-tacking or collaboration is going on between uh, the department, prior to all this, the department and the uh, HMRC and, and trade, now trade support services? Uh, because I'm getting some queries about, you probably listened in earlier, <clears throat> um, Seamus Lenny did tell us that there are some maybe well-experienced people at trade support services, and as we put it, maybe some lesser-experienced people at trade support services. And uh, it seems as some people that are touching me, but the lesser experienced ones, um, they're, they're asking questions about these are these are people who have good successful businesses, they aren't a big way going, um, but they're, they're there and they're good businesses. So there seems to be a void there, and as I say, I didn't raise it, maybe she was. So I'm interested to get an update on that. Then, um, following on from that, um, can you advise me uh, again? I don't know the answer to this, that's why I ask you. Is, is there something of a, either a presence, a physical presence at the ports uh, from trade support services who is on hand to take people and to gain them through this? Or is there, if you like, a hotline between the ports and trade support services to uh, negotiate through or to clarify or to work out a problem that maybe there or may not be there indeed? 
and depending on the adversity you get from it. <clears throat> then finally, this may be related to HMRC or whatever, but it's the definition uh, of a further grade, which has just come into me there, from a business which trades on, on an all-Ireland basis, and they're looking at a definition, if there is one, uh, legally as to what's an at-risk good goods or not at-risk goods, uh, pretty more a clear definition of that, if that can be obtained or whatever. So, um, thank you, Chair, and thanks very much again to everyone in here. I'm, I'm getting good reports back about your officials in the case. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. And thank, uh, for that, Mr. McDonald, thank you. Um, we, we had a, I suppose just taking the first one, we have had uh, continuous contact with HMRC through the programme team as they were developing this. And we would have had a regular reference group meeting, which I would chair, and we would invite HMRC along to that as well. And they've been also at some of the business events that we've, uh, or the, the stakeholder engagement events we've run. So we have continuously engaged with them. We did have some concerns around Christmas, uh, just coming up to Christmas, just that, that their systems would be ready enough uh, for what we needed. And um, we wrote to them and we got a response back. Um, and it's clear that there are some things that um, are not working as well for them as they would want. Um, no doubt about that. Um, I suppose, you know, it wasn't really, again, it's not unlike our own experience and that you have to, we have to hear these things firsthand from businesses to understand just how it's working. It's one thing for people to say, oh, we'll do this and that, but once you actually, once, once these things come into contact with the real world, you soon find out. So we have been getting quite a bit of feedback and obviously we were hearing the feedback, not, not just from uh, today, but we've, we've got feedback as well. And certainly um, we, we will be feeding that back through various routes to HMRC colleagues. Um, I suppose the, the only on the on the actual presence at the ports. I mean, Robert might want to talk about, and then I'm thinking the All Ireland. Uh, uh, you mentioned a company that's working on an All Island basis, and um, the 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 idea of what's at risk. Norman might comment on that. Do you okay. want to do the presence piece so first? At, a, at an operational level, with Border Force, uh, Border Force representative attends daily stock take every morning um, to try and snag any problems we have between us. But our our biggest issue really is that, as I think I've said to you before, we rely heavily on HMRC systems to control freight moving through the port. So it's, a, it's HMRC who, in, in, in general, controls the freight within the portal, um, portal surrounds both sides, and then releases on our behalf um, the consignment at the end. The systems, the ICT systems that allow that happen are late in delivery. And I have to say that personally, I underestimated just how dependent we were on HMRC systems to manage the freight through the port. Um, normally, there should be systems when we identify a consignment we want to look at where the HMRC systems would flag it, uh, flag it to the driver, flag it to us. Um, that wasn't in place. Hence, I had people in yellow jackets at the bottom of ramps. Um, it works, uh, but it's not uh, it's not streamlined. It's not what we'd want to do, and uh, we look forward to those systems being in place. So the coordination at an operational level, the, the working the cooperation at operational level has been very good, very close, and uh, and you know managing managing issues as they arise. And then maybe maybe touch on the at risk goods. If Norman wanted to talk about that. Okay. Um. 
Um, so, uh, comes to that risk, uh, potentially into very complex territory here. If we're talking about a business that is trading uh, on the island uh, of Ireland, uh, north, south, uh, south, north, then there's no issues. Uh, that is completely free movement, unfettered movement. If we're talking about products coming in from GB uh, into Northern Ireland, then that's where, uh, Northern Ireland, then that's where the at-risk issue may arise. Um, now, uh, the scope of all of this has been obviously now very much narrower, given that there is a zero tariff, zero quota trade deal between the UK and the EU. Uh, and therefore, a lot of goods uh, can move uh, between uh, UK and Northern Ireland or Ireland uh, tariff free, but not all. Um, so it's not a complete uh, zero tariff uh, picture we're looking at. And that takes you into a very complex area of rules of origin um, and where the product uh, or indeed the ingredients within the product uh, source from. Uh, will they come from a third country or will they come from uh, wholly originating within the UK or will they're from the EU? So it starts to get into quite complex territory here. Uh, so it very much depends on, on the individual what they're trading, where they're trading it, um, and uh, so it's it's nothing, it's not an issue where I can give a, a blanket answer. Uh, but uh, so very much depends on individual circumstances. But uh, it's it should be a relatively narrow range of goods that would be affected by a potential tariff, um, and that we are talking about a potential tariff issue here. Yeah, thanks very much for that. Now, is, is there any place in particular where I could go or a link or whatever that I could share with this gentleman for his business? Because obviously, maybe not able to get the clarity that um, that he requires for his business. If we get that, that would be very helpful. Um, if I could just share, please reverse back there to the to the issue of the um, the ports. And uh, Robert did refer to. Um, that every morning there's some sort of uh, coordination with with border force. Um, what can I can reverse back there in the event of an issue arising? This there's there's clearly uh, not to presume there's no customs or HMRC officials present at the ports other than if they come in to do checks now again. But is there a hotline where a potential situation does arise that can be clarified by clarification by? The, the uh, HMRC or the trade support people, is there a hotline right through to them, um, right through those working hours, whatever, whatever the ports are operational, so that any issue that may need to be rectified doesn't either have to wait till the next morning, but can be done via some hotline mechanism between DERA and HMRC or uh, trade support services. Again, just to clarify, that's just our stock take in the morning. There are Border Force um, staff at both Larne and Belfast Port. I'm not sure if there's a, a, a permanent presence in Warren Point. Um, and, and we work very closely together uh, when it comes to the operational issues. So there are staff there um, at Border Force staff there at the ports um, carrying out their particular checks. But the link, I suppose the link on the link through to HMRC, um, again, I suppose my, my expectation was that the, the hotline was TSS. Um, but having said that, I'm just, Norman might um, have something more up to date on that. I don't know if you have anything, Norman, you want to add to that? I think that's 
Actually, I mean, we'd be very, we'd be very happy to follow up on that. It's a, it's a really good query, and uh, I mean, again, one of the useful things is not that we haven't been hearing the feedback. Um, we've been hearing a lot, but it actually kind of tends, sometimes tends to melt together because there's so, so much happening at a point in time. Um, but actually, haven't heard the feedback this morning, and uh, just that question, it'd be good for us to just follow up, and I'll maybe write back to uh, colleagues in. Uh, HMRC, uh, just to kind of make sure that if there is if there is other alternatives that we can use, we'll use them. But at the minute, the TSS is our is, is the the help name. Thank you. Thank you, Patrick. Uh, Claire. Thank you, Chair, and thank you to everybody for your your answers and your updates so far. And I just do want to commend the whole team because I think that. There's nobody here in the, the committee that um, hasn't seen the work that you're putting in and certainly um, the updates that you have been given to us as a committee as well. So thank you for that and I know that you've probably had no holidays and that there's no respite in sight just yet. But um, good to hear that Robert at least is getting a good vibe from somewhere for <laughs> the minute. But I maybe want to touch on a few issues that maybe haven't been looked at yet or addressed. But maybe first, I know that a lot of the ASIs and ours and stuff we're going through in that big legislative framework or timetable that was happening before um, was to ensure a functioning rulebook. I just want to ask first of all, are you content that we have a functioning rulebook at the minute? Uh, yes, is a straightforward answer. Um, we there may be there may be something that may uh, come up. There are one or two issues um, that aren't as perfect as we'd like. You know where, for example, legislative references um, aren't as up to date as it could be. But um, in terms of have we got the basic uh, rulebook in place to be able to do what we need to do? Uh, that would be unless my colleagues want to correct me because they found out something in the last 24 hours. Uh, and, but even at our, our meeting this morning, there was nothing came up. Um, so my, the simple answer would be yes. But maybe just check with Norman and and um, Robert and David actually as well, who's online. Are we're okay on battery service? I'm not having Norm, Norman uh, or David? No, uh, I And David there, David Small. Uh, maybe well look if uh, David uh, if there if anything if anything crops up we'll let you know but I mean the reason I'm asking that is not um, even though we had these discussions every day it's just that there's such a fast moving situation and you might find that something comes up so I don't want to mislead the committee but uh, if if anything comes up we'll certainly let the committee know. Right, thank you and we've heard obviously a lot about trade and traders and that flow of traffic. I want to maybe ask you then about people. Um, people are travellers, and have we had any impacts there, or any issues arising from just people travelling across the the MEC or across any of these borders at the minute? No, not that not that I'm aware of. I'm aware of anything. Ours, we're 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 entirely focused on the SPS arrangements, so uh, not not aware of anything, and not aware of anything from colleagues across departments being raised at this point. Okay, great. And hopefully, if you were listening in earlier, um, when we were speaking to Seamus Leahy, um, 
raised the issue of the drivers who are being stopped and facilities for them and if they are waiting and even those who are just being checked sometimes that is taking a lengthy time and that will hopefully speed up given the passage of time but you know what kind of infrastructure do we have will we need more and are we planning on putting facilities in place for drivers and others who are stopped I, I did hear this morning and I did check and we have facilities in both Larne at Redlands Road and in um, Duncree Street in Belfast. Um, now remember these are contingency plans that we have on contingency facilities and um, I know because I asked what is that big block in the middle of the car park um, in, our new, in, our, in the new facilities and the answer is that's the toilet block because I wondered what it was. Um, so there will be more extensive facilities at the final um, the final, at the final uh, premises, but we do have premises. For, we do have toilets for the use of drivers at both Alarn and Belfast. And uh, sorry, there's another piece to that question, which I think I've dropped somewhere. Nothing. Thank you. Just my, my other one is just you know for even for heat and for comfort, so toilets and bathroom facilities is, is good to have, of course, and um, even for refreshments or just space to stretch out. Yeah. Oh, sorry, the thing that was, I was, uh, was told when I was asking that is that uh, most lorry drivers, if they uh, find they're going to be held a while, just drop the lorry and disappear and come back and get it later on. So they, they do do that because I wasn't sure if we allowed them to do that, and they do. Okay. They drop the lorry and go on. I suppose it's worth also distinguishing between maybe some of the discussion around what's happening with lorries in GB, um, where they're waiting at the port and there'll be facilities at the port, but that's nothing, that's not ours. I think ideally, in an ideal world, while, while we want to have those facilities as a backup, uh, the intention is that it's, you know, once this starts running the way we want it to run, um, the vast majority of the, the documentary checks will be done remotely. The vast majority of the lorries will be, the ID checks will be done through seals. And that'll be somebody looking at the seal in uh, Ken Ryan or whatever, saying, good to go. We don't ever see them from that point. They go onto the ferry and they leave the, uh, the ferry at the other end. Um, and then, you know, a small percentage of them, or depending on the, the, the issues, as, as Robert has said, but ideally, a smaller the smaller the better uh, percentage of them would be getting pulled over at that point um, just for the physical check. But um, that should be... So even in, in so much as the photographs so far, you know, if you compare them to, for example, recent photographs around Dover and things like that, no comparison. Um, but we wouldn't even want that many. We'd want, in an ideal world, you'd have very, very few vehicles sitting there, maybe two to four per sailing. Again, we can't guarantee that because of some of the points that Robert made earlier around the official controls regulation, but that would be the aim. Okay, thank you. And just two other issues I want to address as well. I mean, in the final few days and hours of reaching the agreement, um, we heard a lot about the fishing industry. So we want to ask you um, if there has been any feedback or engagement so far with our fishing sector and any impacts, um, negative or positive, from them. Yeah, I was hoping um, David Small was on the call. Is David on the call today or um, just checking? No, maybe not. Maybe David's not on it. Uh, he was due to be on it, but that, that's okay. Well, look, we can, we can get... It's a blank screen, yeah. It's just a blank screen. It's a blank screen, yeah, so maybe, maybe, he's, um, <laughs> maybe he's dealing with some fisheries issues at the minute. But uh, I suppose that, that, look, just I suppose in summary, um, it's helpful to actually raise the issue because um, there, one of the issues was around the IUU regulation. 
and uh, this is a, um, a regulation around um, illegal um, catches, and it's about putting in catch certificates and regimes for Northern Ireland fleet. Um, so the uh, UK government has developed a unilateral position on this, and has written to um, the uh, has written to the local fishing industry here. Um, so we have not been applying all of the requirements in the IUU at this stage. Um, now we've done that on the basis of legal advice. Uh, so obviously we have to be content that there's there's enough of a, a grey area um, that um, we will not be doing enforcement on the IUU regulations. We'll be happy to follow up in writing from the committee. I was hoping that David could talk in a little bit more detail about it today, but I'm, I'm glad to have the opportunity to say that to the committee. And to be honest, I do not ask the question. I'd have probably wanted to mention it at the end. And in terms of um, domestic quotas for the Northern Ireland industry, um, has that been confirmed and are the sector content with that? Um, I haven't. I haven't got confirmation on that. Obviously, all I know at this stage is uh, there's been general feedback about the deal itself. Um, but again, I can. We can forward. We can. We can. We can follow up in writing, and it may well be worth actually a session in its own. And I'm sure David would be happy to come back and do that. Okay, thanks. That's and then just the last one. I know it runs over time. Is just um, looking at the avian flu outbreak that has been identified recently, um, and I know that one. Um, um, Chicken um, farm has to be isolated, but I suppose I wanted to see if there was any update on that or if we have concerns that it is going to spread um, and the impact on that and whether that will be again another issue to be concerned about. Um, and that Robert was saying there's a, a chick, um, a, a, a concern that chickens coming in this week or today. Um, and just any concerns or updates on that one? Again, again, I'm glad you asked that because that's one that Robert would undoubtedly have mentioned before we left. So, Robert? It says something about the times we're in that I declare hypothetic avian influenza in Northern Ireland for the first time ever. And it's a subnote to this meeting. In different times, it would have been front and centre. Um, and it, it, it is, uh, this is a serious episodic disease. And this is a very major um, issue uh, for the poultry industry. Uh, you'll recall that GB have had this particular strain of high pathogenic human influenza since the beginning of November. They've had 16 outbreaks there in a range of different uh, premises. Um, we have had eight wild bird findings in Northern Ireland, many of them around the Ban Valley. Uh, but this is the first time that it has been confirmed in commercial poultry in Northern Ireland. A farm in Clough between Ballymena and Ballymoney in Antrim, family farm, um, initially identified by a private practitioner on the 1st of January. I asked not to get even influenza until 2021 and they waited all of about two hours. <laughs> but anyway, um, a total of 80,000 uh, birds uh, will be destroyed in that, have been destroyed um, on that farm this morning. And uh, it's a, a very big shock for us all. Um, so initially it was found in, in, in young birds, in two 16,000 uh, 14-week-old birds of layer breeders. Um, 
clinical signs of nervousness and uh, and low mortality to start with and then the mortality ramps up. But on that holding there are also two other premises which are strongly associated. It's a family uh, business with family members helping each other out in each other's houses. So across the road to um, 16,000 of free range um, layers, 70 and 74 weeks old, and then down the road at half a mile, a house of 1,600 birds, or 16,000 birds, uh, three weeks, three, four weeks old. And um, they've all been slaughtered this morning. Um, we have put in the three and uh, 10K zones um, around that um, restrict, restricted zone and a surveillance zone. And within those areas, all movements of goods and poultry and people, uh, to some extent, have to be licensed. So everything from the milk lorry to feed deliveries uh, is, is licensed in order to, for us to be absolutely confident that we can keep the disease within this, this area. And then, um, day before yesterday, confirmed uh, yesterday, um, we have a second outbreak in Lisburn, this time of 31,000, uh, again, layers, 53-week-old uh, uh, birds uh, in the top of their lay type of thing. So um, those will be slaughtered tomorrow. And again, zones have been put in place. Um, as far as trade is concerned, trade can continue from outside the 10K zones. Uh, so uh, within within the EU and within the UK. Their country trade is dependent on specific conditions within the export licences, be that hatching eggs, um, table eggs, or poultry meat, or poultry products. So it does have significant consequences um, uh, for not just those families involved, but also for the wider poultry industry. Um, DERA has a very close working relationship with the entire poultry sector. Um, we meet with them very regularly, the joys of WebEx, and uh, keep them up to date with what they're doing, uh, with what we're doing. And you know, the, the plea is the same as it always is. Uh, it's about biosecurity. Um, biosecurity is about keeping contamination out of the houses and away from the poultry that are susceptible. Um, and from other birds that are susceptible. And it's as important for the people with five backyard chickens as it is with the people with the 30, 40, 50, or in this case, 80,000 birds. Um, so same call as always for, for, for thinking through biosecurity. I've asked the companies um, to, think, to look again at it because people become complacent. Uh, people think they have good systems in place, but the systems are only as good as the man behind the wheelbarrow. So I need them to check and make sure what they think is happening is actually happening. And for those companies that have to go onto poultry farms in order to do their business, whether that's collecting of eggs or collecting of dead stock, delivering feed, to redouble their efforts to ensure that everything is more than just okay, that everything is as well as anybody can do it. We have another three months of this before the summer will hopefully uh, take this virus away from us. Um, but we have three months. We've got through two. Um, you could surmise that perhaps the number of wildfowl has increased because of the cold weather in, in England this week. 
I don't know. I'd need an ornithologist to help me with that. Um, but um, the risk is here. The risk's in Northern Ireland. And um, we all have to do our bit to try and get on top of this. Okay. Okay. Um, Tom, Tom Blair. Thank you, Chair. Can I, uh, to, at the start, mindful of the fact that people uh, are here later than they were scheduled, and both held them back and, and mindful of the, the time, I want to add the thanks expressed to the senior team and their, their respective business areas across the department for the work done, not just in recent weeks, but in the last four and a half years on these uh, issues. Where we really are very grateful for your updates and your hard work on this. Um, I want to ask you about <clears throat> following up on a conversation earlier with our logistics representatives and uh, farmers representatives. There's some discussion around the movement of goods um, from TB to ROI and into Northern Ireland, and if um, all avenues can be explored to find out if they can assist in supply chains. Uh, <coughs> the issue was a transit system that works. Are all avenues being explored to ensure that uh, those no, no, no routes can be uh, used if required and that are being used freely, if it helps? Well, I suppose in general terms, we're, we're working very closely with the industry, as we've said. Um, we're looking at all options to try to improve the whole um, the, the, the whole situation. And there have been some proposals I know put forward in some of the meetings that you've been having, Robert, and your team's been having with the industry. So maybe, I don't know if you can say anything more about that. I think some of the comments that were made this morning reflected some of what you've been doing. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about SPS, and then maybe Norma can help out with, with other detail. So consignment in France that wants to come to the island of Ireland through either Cairn Ryan or through Dublin can just drive straight through. They don't need an export health certificate, they don't need certification, they don't need sealed, they don't need anything. So it's literally just using, um, I think you heard this morning, uh, Great Britain as a land bridge between the continent and here. Um, the difficulties come around and, and similarly products of animal origin moving from Northern Ireland over the land bridge to Dublin and then on um, require no documentation, sealing or anything else. They just require to do that. The difficulty comes, as with many things, coming the other way. So, you know, products wanting to come from, from GB to Northern Ireland through Dublin. As far as the Dublin authorities are concerned for SPS, they're entering the single market and they're entering the single market into Ireland, not Northern Ireland. And, and until they can um, verify that the goods are going to Northern Ireland, they have to deal with them uh, as if they were entering uh, Southern Ireland rather than Northern Ireland. And that's what causes a lot of the, the difficulty for them. Now, as far as SPS is concerned, there's probably ways that that can be mitigated. Um, but th that is my understanding of the position at the moment. Norman, can you add anything on the um, on the HMRC tariffs side of that? Okay, so uh, I suppose uh, if you take the, the journey from North Ireland to Dublin to GB, uh, ideally what we'd like to see there uh, is the equivalent of what we have uh, on the direct routes uh, out of Belfast or Larne, which is unfettered uh, access. Um, and that's where we'd like to get to. Uh, and uh, the Minister actually has written to his counterparty yesterday uh, just on this issue of um, trying to streamline as, as much as possible the, uh, the processes through, uh, through Dublin. 
So that would be effectively a non-fettered access issue uh, that uh, we would need to try and see if there's, there's anything that can be done there. In terms of product coming from GB uh, to Dublin to Northern Ireland, uh, I know there was discussions this morning around uh, transit mechanism. Uh, a transit mechanism really is a means of holding over a potential tariff liability so that you don't actually pay it uh, at the point of landing, uh, but you effectively put that uh, on a, a temporary hold, if you like, um, and you move on to your final destination. Uh, and uh, at your final destination, uh, that's where you complete your, your customs processes. Um, so as I said earlier, uh, in the case of we you now have a free trade uh, uh, agreement between the uh, UK and EU, so therefore the, the number of goods where there would potentially be a, a tariff issue is obviously very much reduced compared with what it uh, might otherwise have been, uh, but there, there still could be some, uh, depending on um, rules of origin uh, and, and the nature of the, the product uh, and the goods. So a transit mechanism might still be relevant, uh, but for a relatively small uh, uh, proportion of overall trade uh, uh, that could be put in place. Otherwise, uh, you simply, uh, as you would do coming into Belfast, you do your SPS, uh, you, you do your, your customs, uh, and you clear the port and off you go. Uh, so where there's no tariffs uh, involved, then there's no transit mechanism. Uh, necessary, um, and that, uh, so therefore it's a, it's a, it's a simpler uh, process. Just make good, good use of the uh, free trade agreement mechanisms. Okay, okay. So very much depend on the product that you're, you, you are transporting. You, you indicated there uh, normally that correspondence has gone from, from Europe to the Irish country parts and, and we're working on those issues, yeah? That's correct, yeah. The Minister wrote actually yesterday uh, on the issue of trying to streamline processes as much as possible because uh, I think as you said earlier, it's a very important route, particularly for agri-food and particularly for the meat sector, red meat sector, uh, where a significant volume of material goes out through that particular route. Uh, so if we can actually achieve unfettered access through that route as well as through the cross channels, then that would be a big, big help. Okay, thanks for that. Thank you. Um, Philip? Philip? Yep, thank you, Chair. Uh, and like, like everybody else, I just want to pay compliment uh, to, to, to the gentleman and, and, the, and the officials. I mean, I it was clear from uh, the, the presentation this morning that, that of all the good work from the, the industry and the engagement, so that, that, that's really good. Uh, I kind of held off uh, to the end because I wanted to raise on Brexit issues, uh, particularly the flu, so the majority of the Brexit issues uh, that I'm on the raise have been dealt with. I mean, I just, it was clear on, from the presentation and from this morning uh, the issues with the Trader Support Service definitely need pursued. So, I mean, I, I would encourage. Uh, Dare to continually uh, bang the drum with the trade support services to get those issues uh, ironed out as quickly as possible. And you know, if, if we, if the committee can be updated as, as that work goes along, I mean, the other, like other members, I had been uh, lobbied by the assisted dogs. I mean, that is a, that is a very important issue that we do. Need. I, I'm, I'm heartened to hear Robert say that the minister is pursuing, and you know, it's hard to say that. 
they were saying that it could take uh, longer than months. So again, uh, you know, appreciate the committee getting any kind of updates on on, on that issue. Uh, and then the avian flu uh, outbreak, obviously that's in the, the farming clock is in my constituency, uh, so I, I'm very concerned about it. Uh, obviously it's going to be a devastating blow to the family and, and that business. So can, can I ask, just given that devastating blow, will, will there be support? for uh, families uh, and businesses affected by uh, an outbreak. Uh, and just further to that, I mean, Robert mentioned some of the measures that are put in place uh, for businesses. I mean, can I ask, is, is this something that affects domestic birds and is there going to be any measures put in place to ensure that you know, there's no spread via uh, domestic birds? Uh, and he also mentioned that, uh, I think he mentioned that it's a, it's a virus uh, or flu that uh, diminishes in the summer, so I could ask for maybe just a bit of clarity uh, if that is the case. Yeah, the, the virus gets here generally in wildfowl um, and has swept across Europe, uh, across GB, and has arrived in the island of Ireland. It did so around the end of October, beginning of November, when we started to find uh, wildfowl. There has been an outbreak in Wexford in in, in the south of Ireland, and uh, then we have had our two, two here. Um, most species of bird are susceptible, but to different degrees. Um, so actually, your, some of your waterfowl can have the disease, spread it, but not have particularly clinical signs. Um, domestic fowl uh, tend to get a quite severe form of the disease, but it can also be spread by other birds, such as crows, and yes, it can be in uh, birds like canaries and other kept birds. And in fact, we have a suspect flock, I think it was cleared this morning, in a flock of peacocks. And um, yeah, so virtually every species of bird. Um, in GB, they've had a suspect in a group of penguins. So uh, I think that gives you the full range of birds that can be affected by this. Um, so. On financial support, the, the, it, there is of course compensation um, for the, on the slaughter of the birds. The, the full costs of the destruction of the flock and its rendering is covered by government. But that doesn't of course uh, replace for the family their loss of income. And it will be a period after C and D before they can repopulate. And, um, and it's important to realise here that this is not just one family, I think there are three families uh, supported by this business, dairy farm, a very traditional Northern Ireland farm um, where they have diversified from livestock into poultry and, um, and <coughs> several families uh, living off the one parcel of land. So it's, um, it's a fairly typical situation for Northern Ireland. Okay, okay Philip. Yeah, thank you. Just, I mean, just a reiterate the point about uh, being kept up to date with those other ongoing issues, if possible. Yep. That's absolutely fine. Very happy to do that. And if the if Chair, if you want an even even influence update on a regular basis, yep. tell me what you want. Yeah, absolutely. I think I'd be very helpful with this, given the seriousness of the... If you want a written update, we'll get you a written update regularly, yep. or I'll come back and talk. Very helpful. Um, okay. Um, Given that we have uh, <coughs> no other members down who uh, have listed to ask a question, I want to take the opportunity to thank you. Thank you for 
taking in the time out of a very, very busy schedule to come here before us today. And sorry about the delay, but it's, it's such a hot topic that there's so many questions with the previous witnesses and yourselves. So we, we genuinely appreciate this. It's important to get these things all um, all sized out, out. So thank you very much, uh, Dennis and Robert and Norman, David and Nicole, and happy new year to you. Thanks very much, Thanks, Chair, Chair. And thank you to the committee members for your challenge and support. Okay. Um, okay, in terms of any other business, uh, the uh, officials attend the meeting today, Dennis and Robert and Norman and Nicole and David, uh, and substitute for their planned attendance at next week's meeting. Um, however, I have requested that they provide the committee with fortnightly updates on EU exit matters starting from this week. Um, and do members have any other business they want to raise before we, we adjourn? Um, can I maybe make a make a suggestion that on and see in front of the witness evidence that was raised today there that perhaps we should consider um, writing to HMRC about the rebate the issue to do with the rebate system that was highlighted by uh, um, Victor. Um, perhaps write to JC about the guide dogs issue. Well, and perhaps um, maybe. Would it be to the uh, DEFRA about the the MAS, the, the cost of the health attestation documents? Something maybe we should highlight as well as any other issues that be actions that we should maybe want to come out of. We already, we already have looked at the, the <coughs> scheme uh, and we've seen another issue. So, sure. is it okay then? Sure. Sure, but then we took the words out of my mouth, Patsy. <laughs> oh, right. Yeah, absolutely. You're 100 percent right. I think I think we should definitely um, you, you should definitely ask for um, either a present an oral presentation from or at the very minimum a written presentation mm -hmm. from because there's a, that to me in today's meeting that was a dominant thread that ran right through it that the yeah. sports service basically hasn't been doing what they should be doing and getting businesses prepared and there's 355 million pound has been invested in them and it's dear here that is picking up the problems of, um, of, of businesses not being properly prepared coming from across the water so I think that would be very important um, I'm glad you came in that suggestion Patsy so yeah absolutely so folks hey um, the next meeting is on Thursday the 14th here um, yes Claire yeah, go ahead. I just got to remind me. I think that uh, um, just following up on an action from a previous meeting, I think we had contacted Chair Environmental Services and asked them for uh, um, to come and give us a presentation. Have we heard back from them on that invite? Scheduled. I can't remember the day, but it is scheduled. I think for January, February, sometime. Okay. Yeah, did you hear that? Did you hear Stella yeah. saying that it is scheduled for this month or next month, Claire? Just can't remember uh, what yeah. date. Sure. Okay, Norm. Norm, uh, Harry. Hi, Norman's my brother. Also, <laughs> I was going to say the uh, the VAT. I don't know whether it'd be worthwhile writing to KPMG or CBI, would it? For we will do. Would you mind that, sir? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. VAT and the second-hand cars, especially yeah. because the traders are. Yeah, yeah I think you would be very helpful there. Yeah, that's great. Yep, yep, okay. we'll try. Thank you. Okay, chair. folks, with a few actions there. So thanks very much. And first meeting of the year, so it was very, yeah. I think it was very constructive, yeah. a good start to 2021. So thank you very much, folks, and I'll see you all again next week. Thank you. No, go ahead. I'll not send it public.